Kiefer here, host, editor, etc. I'm going to make this quick because this episode's long enough as it is, but I have an announcement about the show. Just so you are aware, this episode's going to be the last one I'll release in 2023. I plan to take December off because it's the busiest time of the year for my full-time job. And don't worry, I plan to be back in January and return to my regular bi-weekly release schedule. I just need the month to keep up with the responsibilities in my personal life. I'm very excited for the future of the show. I've already got some incredible guests lined up to talk about some incredible games, but you're going to have to wait until 2024 for the next episode, unless you're a member of my Patreon, in which case I have some very exciting news. I'm going to be releasing my first ever Patreon-exclusive bonus episode this December. Up until now, members of my Patreon got episodes early with exclusive segments and conversations not included in the main feed. But now, if you contribute $1 or more a month to my Patreon at patreon.com slash Corner, you'll not only get all of that, but you'll also get a special bonus episode that will come out between now and my return to the main feed in January. It won't be in the standard format. It won't have any guests. It'll be a solo outing where I talk about 2023 as a whole, talk about my favorite games I've played, movies and shows I've watched, music I've listened to, and so on. I'll reflect on the changes in the gaming industry, talk about what I'm looking forward to playing in the future. I'm also going to take the opportunity to answer some listener questions. So if you have any questions for me, send a DM or leave a comment on Twitter at SelectPodStart or send an email to SelectPodStart at gmail.com. I might answer it in the bonus episode. I'm going to do more than just talk about myself in this bonus episode. I have a few goodies in store for you. And if you like the show enough to support it financially, even for just a dollar a month, I really think you'll enjoy this. That's going to be on Patreon.com slash Corner. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Corner. I've also got a link in the description of this, as well as every other episode. If you cannot financially support the show, that's more than okay. I appreciate you just taking the time to listen. And if you like what you hear, please remember to follow the show and leave a like or a five-star review wherever you listen to it, because it really, really helps the show when you do that. Thank you so much for listening to Select and Start. Thank you so much for supporting it. All right, I think that's it. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Select and Start, the podcast about meaningful and memorable video games. I'm your host, Kiefer, and every episode I bring on a guest who selects a game that made an impact on their life. I have another returning guest with me today, the very first guest I ever had on this show, the host of multiple podcasts, including My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, a podcast about the Lord of the Rings films, and Not a Podcast, a Song of Ice and Fire reread podcast. And he's one of my favorite people in the world. It's Manu, a.k.a. Manuclear Bomb. Manu, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, good. Thanks for having me back, Kiefer. It's a pleasure to be on this podcast. It was great to kick off this with you and then to see all the great guests and all the great games you've covered since. Uh, It's really remarkable. You've been doing great work. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I have gone back and listened to that first episode to prepare for this one. And man, I think I'm better at this now than I used to be. And I'm glad I got you back so you can get a better version of the show. To, uh, to talk about one of your favorite franchises in. Yeah, absolutely. And now that you have like very rigid segments and know what your podcast is about, I'm like a whore for podcast segments. I love a well-structured <laughs> podcast and you have one of those. 
Um, so it's very excited to come back now that you're in the full swing of things. Yeah, we're not just like talking about the plot of the game and being that's cool. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we we figured it out. Hopefully, this is going to be a weird one because it's a very weird game. Not your fault. <laughs> um, it's kind of my fault. N- well, <laughs> we'll get into that. Don't worry. I blame society. Manu, you've already been on the show. Uh, the very first episode, in fact, I do not need to check your gaming credentials. We can skip that whole part. The council has unfortunately determined that you are a gamer and it's incurable. <laughs> this is true. Now, I know that your life is more, as you said in the first episode, your your gaming experience is more front loaded than it is in your current life. What with being an adult and having to maintain not just one, but at least two podcasts at the moment. It's hard to play, make time for video games. Even I, with a video game podcast, have a hard time doing it. But that being said, what have you been playing uh, in a year, or year and change since you were last on the show? Well, there's three games that I have played exactly. On top of all those other things with adult commitments, I was also very unemployed for a while. Um, and while that might seem like more time to game, that was also less money to buy games with. Yeah. And because of that, I did not get to play much. The first of the three games I played was Elden Ring. And that was my first real Souls game. And it kind of blew me away. Um, I was really, really bad at it for a long time. I think it took me like 250 hours to actually beat it. But it was an exhilarating experience. I kind of got into the style playing uh, Jedi Fallen Order. That was like kind of my first Souls-like. Um, and that got me interested in something like this. And knowing that George R.R. R. Martin, who's very heavily involved in the podcast I do, was uh, you know kind of co-creator, or at least gave a lot of the inspiration to it. Um, and then seeing just a fleshed out fantasy magical world, um, that shit's just straight up my alley. So um, that was the first one. I was blown away by it. It's one of my favorite games ever. Um, second would be The Legend of Zelda, Tears of the Kingdom. And that, ugh, so much to say about that. And, you know, I honestly thought that might be a game I'd want to come back and talk about because I did want to <laughs> talk about Breath of the Wild. But my podcast co-host, Emily, got to that first. And that <laughs> would have been kind of cool, but... You know, there's a lot to say about that game. I, there's no need to talk about it here. I'm sure you're going to get to it and it's going to be a wonderful episode at some point. And then the third game, which I mostly played because it was free from my legacy PlayStation subscription, was Stray. And I mostly played it because it has a cat that looks very much like my cat, Chini. Um, so uh, I played that. Yeah. I own three cats. None of them that look like the uh, the titular Stray, but... Charmed by the game, nonetheless. Uh, it was it was a very pleasant game. I don't know what else to say, but it was a very pleasant game. Yeah, and I think I was just kind of in awe of just like, oh yeah, a cat is perfect for a video game. Like the way cats move, the way cats are, um, they make for you know great puzzle solvers, great climbing, you know, mechanics. Um, it was just like, oh yeah, this this is kind of cool. Um, and just you know, it's cute. There's a lot of like purring and rubbing up on other cats and sitting in laps and sleeping on cushions. That shit makes me go wild in my real life. I take so many pictures and post them on social media. Um, so there's a game where I can kind of like do those things. Uh, it's great. I really loved it. Yeah, no, I love buttons that have like a dedicated uselessness to them. Like when you're a pedestrian in the Spider-Man games and you can just like do finger ba- like finger points at the, <laughs> the crowd, stuff like that. And having a dedicated meow button is extremely my shit. And you're right about the cats basically being perfect for the medium of video games i haven't really thought about it in those terms before we have video games where you are basically an amorphous blob like carrion and cats that are basically somewhere between a solid and a liquid being perfect for like locomotion is it's it's, just, it's weird that it took this long to get there yes they are very solidus in their nature <laughs> we'll get there 
you, you, you've played Elden Ring, and that was a game that you talked about a little bit when you were first on here, but I hadn't played it yet, so I couldn't speak to it. And then I spoke to it so many times on the podcast that I don't feel like we need to uh, talk about it too much, but you don't play a lot of video games, and it's a series that is strange in its design and structure and controls the same way that Metal Gear is. Just talking about Elden Ring very quickly, do you have like a thing that you can think of as like, this is why this game works for me? It makes me think in ways that engage my brain. And to be fair, I think the way that I had never really played like an RPG, like in terms of a tabletop or kind of a create your own character kind of RPG, I'd always played like one of those party based, like Final Fantasy style RPGs. Um, So I never really had to think about like skill points and attributes in that same way. Like in like a Final Fantasy, especially like the older uh, Super NES ones that I'm most familiar with in PlayStation 1, you know, you level up and they kind of do your adjustments for like, agility and magic defense and all that stuff kind of for you built into who the characters are and all that i um, and having the freedom to do all that myself and actually having to think about that um, i was formerly an accountant or an auditor so being very like meticulous with numbers is something that kind of triggers the lizard brain in me um, so i think that was something and then part of it is always um, the george R. R. martin aspect of kind of questioning the violence that um, we kind of look for in some kind of like action stories or fantasy medieval stories. And obviously, you know, George Martin wrote for the game like we talked about. You know, there is a lot of story to Elden Ring and it just kind of sublimated in a, into the way the game is played, the way the game is built, the way you build your character and the way you kind of build your own narrative. And I think that's the big thing. And I think that's something that Kojima has played with all throughout his career of making video games is like what makes a video game a unique experience? It's not necessarily like a movie where you have a plot that needs to be told from beginning to finish that's completely controlled, right? This is something where the user has input and to really interact with the game and the world also possibly involves interacting with the like the output or the result. Um, like where the story ends is kind of really dependent on how the player played the game. Um, and you see that with games that have multiple endings like Elden Ring, um, where you can, you know, kind of choose your own path. You can kill every NPC if you are like that um, and see where that leads or like whose quest line you follow. It gives you a real kind of agency, uh, for lack of a better word, in a way mm-hmm. that a lot of games don't. And I actually think that works well with the Metal Gear oeuvre because the games themselves, because most of them for them are like just a linear story in the end. Um, there's a lot of variability in there, but they are linear. And Kojima is often commenting about the fact that his narrative is somewhat on the rails. He tries to give you gives you options to break out of it. But I think he's always commenting the fact that there is kind of a prescribed path for Snake or for Raiden or for Big Boss. And he kind of gets into that with his game design. And I think Elden Ring is just kind of the natural evolution of that, a realization of what kind of Kojima was playing with, you know, 20, 25 years ago. That's very well said. And I really appreciate your your thoughtful answer for something I like asked on the fly there. Um, but no, you're, you're very right. And I think that you have such a unique and specific insight into video games because you said like this is your first experience playing like an open-ended RPG like this. And right now, games like Baldur's Gate 3 are doing like a big part of their promotion and a big appeal of their games is how uh, like there's so many structured and like built in things for it but like that the breadth and the scope of it is what's what's so uh appealing to people because no two people are going to have the same experience playing that game and elden ring is very much a immersive game in the sense where uh, you know you pick your attributes but every choice that you make is your brain choosing to make that decision and the consequences of that actions vis-a-vis the ending or or just a simple thing of like i failed here and i have to try again and i actually have to learn how to beat this boss like there is an actual skill 
outside of the fact that like I know how to hit this boss, but I need to know how to actually not get killed by this boss. It's just an interesting interactive relationship there. And it is pure video game to to your point about um, Kojima working in that space. I read an interview in preparation for this episode that he gave around the time of Metal Gear Solid 2. And he's talking about, they asked him about the Psycho Mantis thing, right? Or he brings up the Psycho Mantis thing because he's very much trying to differentiate gaming as a medium. He's a fan of literature. He's a fan of film. But basically his mindset about like doing Psycho Mantis was you couldn't do that in any other medium. I wanted to do something like that to make games just feel like a different thing. And games like Elden Ring do that very well. Yeah. Um, I know in some of the documents of Metal Gear Solid 1 that came out in 1998, he talked about the concept of digital fusion, that a video game is able to be many mediums as well as its own thing. It can be a visual novel. It can be an interactive experience. It can be a movie. Um, this is something you can see in his work even prior to Metal Gear Solid. I think like Snatcher and Police Knots are very much in that mold as well. Um, so it's really kind of exploring what is a game. And that's why I think a lot of his games engage with the memory card, the controller, the console, um, because he is very interested in the medium itself. And, you know, one of the very basic definitions of what can make great art is that something that engages with form as much as it does function. It's how it's about the story it's about and how its story is specifically fine-tuned to the medium it's being told in. And I think he, perhaps more than any other video game creator, is in touch with that idea. I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, we're talking about multiple mediums, and I know you're a fan of Zelda. And this isn't a news podcast. I don't break news because I record these things out weeks in advance, but I literally told you yesterday, like, I closed my Google Docs, and I was like, okay, I'm ready for it. No, I'm not ready for the episode. There's breaking news. Nintendo has released a statement. Development of a live-action film of The Legend of Zelda to start. Uh, Nintendo Company Limited today announced that it will develop a live-action film of The Legend of Zelda. The film will be produced by Shigeru Miyamoto, representative director and fellow of Nintendo, and Avi Arad, chairman of Arad Productions, Inc., which has produced many mega-hit films. The film will be produced by Nintendo and Arad Productions, Inc., and directed by Wes Ball. Uh, the Maze Runner trilogy, for those who don't know, and the upcoming Planet of the Apes film. The film will be co-financed by Nintendo and Sony Pictures Entertainment Inc. with more than 50% of it financed by Nintendo. The theatrical distribution of the film will be done worldwide by Sony Pictures Entertainment Inc., which is also very interesting because Nintendo, Sony, whatever. I, we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. By producing visual contents of Nintendo IP by itself, Nintendo is creating new opportunities to have people from around the world to access the world of entertainment which Nintendo has built through different means apart from its dedicated game consoles. By getting deeply involved in the movie production with the aim to put smiles on everyone's faces through entertainment, Nintendo will continue its efforts to produce unique entertainment and deliver it to as many people as possible. All this to say, Manu, what's your like reflexive thought to this news? I think The Legend of Zelda is great material for making a movie, and I do not expect to get a great movie out of whatever Nintendo is going to produce. Ding, that's the correct answer, because it's the same answer that I have. We just had a quick conversation about the unique specificities of the medium of video games and what experiences they can bring to you. The broadness and the opportunity of The Legend of Zelda is also why this is not built for the medium of video, uh, the medium of film. Yeah, no, I mean, you talked about this with Emily and Breath of the Wild. Those games really kind of expanded how we thought about open worlds, how we thought about games. And it's not alone. You know, there are a lot of games that have done this, including Elden Ring, MGSV, um, RDR2, I think, amongst them. 
there's something there that makes it very unique. And there's a reason Link is the way he is and doesn't talk in most of the games um, beyond, you know, his little somersault, you know, yells. Um, it's because it is a character that's kind of made as a self-insert and it's kind of, he's kind of androgynous by nature. Um, he is meant to be anyone in a way. Um, and I think that is a character that best exists in a video game world. But at the same time, because the Zelda as much as I, you know, enjoy the idea of the timeline and everything, it's pretty much a canvas um, in terms of the games, each one narratively, and they're just painting with the same colors, but in different ways kind of thing. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be this continuity. So it gives you the building blocks for narrative, which would allow like a very talented writer and director, you know, some filmmakers who had some creative juice to really do something with that, right? Yeah. Or perhaps, you know, maybe in a television series as well, given the structure of a Zelda game, it'd be cool to have like, an 11 to 12 episode season, which is like three episodes as Kid Link and then eight episodes as um, Adult Link and then a final episode with Ganon. I mean, I, it doesn't have to mimic a video game per se, but it, it's just, you know, what we're going to get is going to be like the the Chris Pratt version or the Tom Holland, but you're going to get the Uncharted, you know, kind of adaptation of Link. And I also think it might be a medium question. I think this might be something that would have been so much cooler in animation, but it's going to be something that's given to us in live action. And then that just kind of, given the state of where a lot of live action cinema is now, especially live action cinema that relies heavily on uh, visual effects um, and CGI, um, I'm just not anticipating something that really enchants the mind the way the Zelda games actually do. Right. I have a lot to say to that. The first thing I'll say, just a general concept of an ad adaptation is, sure, knock yourself out. I can, I can say like, oh, it should be this. Oh, it can be that. But we're purely speaking in abstraction right now. I wasn't a fan of the Mario movie that came out earlier this year. I think it was okay. Brian Tyler, MVP. <laughs> and oh, Jack Black, also MVP. But I do not think it had really any juice to it. It just felt like big commercial. And I talked about this on Eric's uh, Patreon bonus episode about top five uh, video game uh, adaptations into movies. You're so used to them as the game. like There's inevitably going to be a disappointment because there's such a you factor that goes into these. Mm -hmm. And also talking about this in Eric's podcast, I fucking hate the Uncharted video movie so much. And it's the same production company. It's, uh, you know, Avi Arad produced that one. That was a Sony product. And because it was a Sony product, like it felt like a commercial and it didn't feel anything authentically like the games. And there's like this whole like copy of a copy of a copy thing that goes into these adaptations that so try and use the, the language of cinema to tell their stories. And I like the Uncharted series, but there is like such a weird thing where like, the artifice of a video game is so beautiful because it's handcrafted and detailed. And then the ways that movies are produced now is that there's everything is so fake that I felt that Tom Holland was like digitized when it turned out everything around him was digitized. And that's why nothing felt like it was connecting. Uncharted feels like the Waluigi of movies um, because <laughs> it is because Uncharted itself is itself derivative of things both in the video game genre like Tomb Raider, but also things like Indiana Jones. Um, so it's already kind of just kind of taking those and kind of mashing them together. And then you're kind of reflecting it back at what its actual influences are. Um, and then you just kind of have like a shadow of a shadow. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's more product than movie. <laughs> um, it just feels like something that, oh, we can probably make, you know, $40 million off this or whatever, pro you know, 120 million. I don't know what the bar is for a successful movie these days. But I mean, that's pretty much the entire calculus that went into greenlighting this movie as far as I can tell. It's a billion dollars or a loss at this point, I think, is what, what a big movie <laughs> is. Um, 
but and like just with with Zelda specifically, it's let's let's look at the let's look at the parts that we do have here. A character named Link, and I talked about this on my Tears of the Kingdom, uh, you know, personal thoughts video. There is like such a specific relationship with uh, the name Link uh, as a canon name in terms of Nintendo putting that name in there to be representative of your personal connection to your player character. And it's like the fact that you can just change that character's name at all is just proof that you are putting yourself into this experience. The part of this appeal of this franchise is you and your relationship with the events unfolding. And now that Link is becoming more and more of a character as these games be iterated on to the point that Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, the name is part of his his, his character mm. in terms of like Link putting the world back together. I understand like that would make it easier to get into a narrative now that the name is like inextricably linked to the character, no pun intended. But again, I think it's just like you're, the, the, the foundation is shaky on that. And then there's the other thing where it's like, oh, this could easily have just been like a Star Wars Visions type seer thing where like everybody gets 20 minutes to give their own version of like what a Zelda is. And that would be really cool. But instead, we're getting a Hollywood live action film instead of a cartoon saloon uh, type animated film. Yeah, I mean, someone posted three pictures of Tom Holland as Link, Anya Taylor-Joy as Zelda and Willem Dafoe as Ganondorf. And I'm like, there's probably good money that that's close to what's going to happen. Willem Dafoe would probably be inspired um, that's inspired <laughs> casting, regardless of what you're casting him as. Gods don't have to choose. We take. Strong enough to have it all. Too weak to take it! But it's just like. I don't anticipate it to be anything that interesting casting wise. And then I just don't anticipate it's going to be that interesting to look at. I cannot wait for the landmine of Ganondorf casting. Like we're going to see like Anya Taylor-Joy, Florence Pugh, Tom Holland, Timothy Chalamet, the Stranger Things boy for like, you know, these characters. But like who's going to fall on the sword of like what color is Ganondorf? <laughs> like who's going to uh, handle that one? <laughs> Uh, they should, uh, what's it called, get Jason Mastukas if they go like, you know, kind of Greek or Jason Mantzoukas, whatever yeah. his name is, um, because he has that Greek look. So he could probably, you can cast him and it would be kind of not super offensive, probably. Yeah. Uh, I think you can get away with that. Oh, yeah. Give me your booze. I am nourished by your hatred. No, yeah, Mantzoukas would be funny, but only if you can get like Paul Shear as like <laughs> uh, Link. Uh. Navi, Paul Sheer Navi. I got it. Oh, we God. Did. Yes, yes. Tingle. There we go. Put Paul Sheer in Zelda. That's my only stipulation. Uh, anyway, you just rolled credits on Spider Man 2, right? Mm hmm. I sure did. Uh, without spoiling it, as someone who hasn't played it yet, what did you think? I loved it. Um, I, I loved it as much as I loved the first one. I actually think I loved it more, um, just on the virtue of, you know, a lot less cop stuff. Um, <laughs> but I think. Um, the me mechanics are really well refined. I didn't get a chance to play the Miles Morales side game. Um, so this was my first time controlling him. And the actual look and feel of Miles, how he handles and how the game kind of has a different vibe when you're playing as him, like really impressed me. Um, it felt very true to his character. Even like the score behind him is different um, and more in line with Miles as a character who's obviously very influenced by the music he listens to um, and creates, which is actually also part of the game at some level. 
Um, I think it's rich, um, mostly web slinging all the time. So um, it's great. It handles just as well, if not better. And I was just really enchanted with the game. I really loved it. And it was a great introduction to the PlayStation 5 because it was my first game on it. Oh, nice. Well, first of all, welcome. There's not a lot of games here. But um, <laughs> second, uh, definitely check out the Miles Morales game if you find the time to play video games in your life. Because number one, it's short. I think it's like 12 hours if you want to 100% the thing. And I think it'd just be a good way to fill in some uh, some blanks there and that you know Spider-Man 2 may have left you with. Also. Thank you so much for your thorough and thoughtful review about a game that you got the chance to play. And I like hearing people's insights on like it's it's this is this is the Elden Ring of this episode where I know I'm going to play a game immediately after I record this, mm-hmm. but I can't speak to it yet. And somehow Manu, the guy who plays like three games a year, got there before <laughs> me. But hey, welcome to the PS5. I know video games aren't your main medium of choice, but you're in the modern ecosystem now. I know you have a Switch as well. What type of game experiences are you looking for in a world where, you know, we're creeping up on a decade since uh, a respectable Metal Gear Solid game has been released? Uh, What would make Manu compelled to check out a video game as soon as possible? (sighs) Yeah, uh, that's a tough one. Um, Because, you know, for a long time, the the answer was just like a Metal Gear Solid title or a Legend of Zelda title, which I think that one still holds. I am actually someone I know people complain about how long games are, but as someone who plays two to three games a year, I like my games long. So I mm-hmm. am looking for something that could push, you know, 60 to 100 hours if I wanted to. Um, that's why, you know, some of the games I mentioned are like uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 or Elden Ring. Um, those are games you can spend a lot of time in uh, Metal Gear Solid 5 um, because I, I'm someone who, you know, kind of blows my load for a month and a half on that game. Um, and then I'm kind of done with it. Very few games outside of like Metal Gear Solid and Zelda or Final Fantasy do I ever really go back and revisit. As someone who doesn't play a lot of games, that means there's a lot of games out there for me to play. So I don't love to replay a ton of games um, other than the ones that I'm like kind of artistically or critically interested in. And that's why, you know, it's kind of Metal Gear Solid all the way down. But um, I do like games that kind of take that holistic approach to video games that really challenge the way that games are, I think. Elden Ring, um, the latest Zelda games, and RDR2 kind of challenged the way we've thought about open worlds for the last 15 years, kind of in like the Assassin's Creed, Arkham City kind of mold, where it tends to be a lot of things on maps to do. Um, and you're just trying to, you know, do 10 of 10 things or, you know, run 15 of 15 fetch quests. Um, I think all those games kind of iterated on the open world style. And that's like a reason I gravitated towards that. Um, I generally am looking for narrative. That's why I don't play a lot of sports games or puzzle games anymore. Um, I mm-hmm. do like the storytelling aspect. I like to really be taken by a story. Um, I think RDR2 is probably something that really affected me. Like I love Arthur Morgan so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like I do look for that kind of emotional attachment to kind of narrative aspects in video games. Uh, I don't think you know video games have to be narrative. I think puzzle games are great. I used to play a ton of them. I still love Tetris. And I used to play a ton of sports games, like especially baseball, football, and basketball. Um, But now with my limited time and because of all sorts of other things developing in my own personal tastes, um, those are kind of the bigger narrative experiences, but things that I feel that are kind of like bucking kind of the commercialized trends in video game. So it's like kind of still in the mainstream, but kind of countercultural maybe Mm -hmm. is kind of where I'm looking at. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, I might have some recommendations for you, but I also want to ask before I throw some at you, is there any specific title in mind you're thinking of checking out on a PlayStation? Um, the first one, honestly, is uh, 
Jedi Survivor, which is the follow-up to Jedi Fallen Order. I would have played that if that was available on the PlayStation 4, but I heard it was just kind of hell development-wise to try and make it work, and they never never were able to. Um, so that is one title I'm looking to check out. Um, I think Final Fantasy 16 is something that I will check out. I'm not like super eager to do it. N- nothing against the game. It's not like I'm, some, I'm like chomping at the bit, but I generally do give a pass to all the mainline Final Fantasy games, or at least the last eight to 10 or so. Um, mm. So I will probably check that out. I have no idea if that's exclusive to this generation or not. It um, is. But those, okay. So those are the two. Um, there's nothing else I can think of at this moment. I know a lot of people are talking about Alan Wake 2, and my old Metal Gear co host, Brian, um, has been telling me to play Alan Wake for a long time. Um, so that would probably perhaps be a third answer to the question. Yeah, I was going to throw out the remedy games of that loose trilogy there. I'll, I'll get to that one in a second. Uh, I think, you know, with Final Fantasy 16, like the developers being so a song of ice and fire or specifically Game of Thrones influence, that would be like a, a wheelhouse thing. And I'd at the very least love for you to play it, even if you don't end up connecting with it, just to talk about like, here's what it gets right or wrong, or like, this is a superficial connection. And this, this is actually a thoughtful connection, things like that. Do it for the, do it for the academic purpose. If yes. anything. <laughs> do it for content. Uh <laughs> The 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 not the not a cast video game cast side absolutely spin. yeah no no uh, there there is obviously an interest in doing that um and I'm not it even really not part of my interest in the game like I'm more interested in the fact that a Ralph Innocent is a voice and I think Ralph Innocent has an incredible voice um so I'm mm. glad he's lending it um but I've heard people say like the Game of Thrones thing is also like definitely like front loaded in the game and at a certain point it does open up to kind of let's say a more traditional Final Fantasy style narrative. Whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I am actually interested in it for that latter part, the Final Fantasy stuff, um, less so than is it Game of Thrones-y or not. Sure. Definitely would like to hear your takes on Final Fantasy 16. Uh, you mentioned Alan Wake 2 because uh, that just came out recently too. This, this year being so big, such a big year, you, Je- Jedi Survivor was a game that came out this year. Spider-Man. Uh, God damn. All right. I, like, I really want to play Baldur's Gate 3, but where am I going to find the time for that? <laughs> I just got Street Fighter 6 today. But I'm a big fan of Remedy's games. Uh, I love the Max Payne series going back to Max Payne 1, Max Payne 2, even better. I even love Max Payne 3, uh, which was developed and published by Rockstar Don't Write In. But I mentioned this a few days ago because I guess a bunch of people are posting about Max Payne 3 because of Alan Wake 2. Uh, I think it is genuinely outside of maybe Metal Gear Solid V, the most mechanically satisfying third person shooter ever made. And I think that needs to be said more because people were a little sour on it because of how it changed the presentation of uh, the franchise. But with uh, Alan Wake, I am checking that first game out right now uh, because people were so high on Alan Wake 2. And there's a lot of um, Metal Gear Solid 2 vibes that people are inching and gesturing at with the new game that's making me finally check out the first game i loved control warts and all that's a game that has a lot of accessibility settings where it's like oh i don't want to have to shoot a thing multiple times i don't want to have to care about like giving extra percentage eight percent damage if the characters in the air kind of upgrades to my gun you can just literally make it so your gun just kills people in one shot and just experience the twin peaksy x filesy narrative it's communicating out to you uh and it has like vague metroidvania style design i think that'd be worthwhile and of course uh you know you played elden ring i uh, always got to advocate for bloodborne check out bloodborne yeah no i would like to go through all the souls games like i said i really clicked with that style i know elden ring kind of opened up the world and 
made it a little more friendly to people like me who you know haven't played those games. Um, but I would like to go to. I know Sekiro is also or Sekiro, sorry, is also mm-hmm. another one that I would like to play, and I know that one's a little more mechanical and based on the parry system and stuff like that. But I, I would like to play all those games. It's just actually doing them and not being distracted by the whatever the newest video game dangling keys that are jangling in front of my face. Yeah. Fortunately, this this show gives me some form of horse blinders where I'm not just caught up in the zeitgeist and I'm playing Phantasmagoria instead of Spider-Man. But also, like I've been opened up to so many new experiences because of this show. And I hope that you take the uh, opportunity with this uh, new generation and all the new bits and bobs and things like that. I'm also telling everybody to check out Hades because I think Hades is an everybody game. I think everybody in the world would love Hades, but I would probably recommend that more on the Switch just because it's a portable experience. Yeah, um, actually, I I haven't really played Hades, but I've kind of played along with uh, with Hades with one of your former guests, Chloe, who was on for the Final Fantasy VIII episode. Yeah, I stay with her when I go to Philly. I stay with her and her husband or her roommate, as she likes to call him, who happens to be my not a cast co-host. Um, but <laughs> she's all about the Hades um, experience. So uh, when I was over there a year or two years ago, um, I just kind of sat on the couch with her and I watched her play for hours. And it was fascinating. Again, I actually have a very soft spot for like Greek myth um, and all that stuff. I mean, that kind of basic, I guess. I think a lot of people have a soft spot for that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but I, uh, I'm really into it. Um, I took a Greek, cl- Greek myth class in college. Um, so I am into like those ideas and those takes on those characters. Um, so that is a game I would love to play at some point. Sure. Yeah. It is my favorite Greek myth adaptation <laughs> into video games, at least. So take that out of war. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, the Yakuza series, I think, would be a super menu thing. Uh, one, sweeping single-player narrative with like a cast of characters who your relationship grows and evolves with. A lot of mechanical depth. There's no game quite like it. I do think that it is the realization of a lot of stuff that the PlayStation 1 was trying to do with games like uh, Mega Man Legends. Like, simulate, like life simulator games. Uh, Shenmue on a Dreamcast. <laughs> but finally, like the medium was able to catch up to it where it wasn't quite as clunky and we finally have 3d cameras but the big thing is you and i are both foot soldiers in the war on cars <laughs> mm-hmm. and i don't think any game in the world advocates for small town walkable communities more than the yakuza series where their open <laughs> world is like five or six city blocks i don't know if you're picking up the dog on my I, I am yeah sorry about the dog folks anyway yeah check out the yakuza series Yeah, uh, Brian has also always recommended I play that. And another connection he says it has with Metal Gear is that most of the game, most of the games end with two shirtless men fighting each other, um, which is a very Metal Gear solid thing as well. Uh, So, yeah, Yeah. another reason to check it out. Absurd heightened realities with uh, an interesting relationship with masculinity that I think Metal Gear is somewhat unaware of to the point of it becoming camp and it becoming not reclaimed, but sort of like attracting an audience whereas yakuza just sort of wears it on its sleeve by basically the second game but yeah in the last episode you were on you used the word boss baby vibes to describe the phenomenon of you like having connections in your head that aren't necessarily academic but just like having an appreciation for something because you're able to immediately vibe with it because you can connect it to something you love and i think that's a normal experience at least for people like us who have the brain worms And for people who hear the word boss baby vibes and don't know what that means, on September 26, 2019, a legendary tweet was made. At Afraid of Wasps tweeted, guy who has only seen the boss baby watching his second movie. Getting a lot of boss baby vibes from this. Which is 
you know, a joke about <laughs> our, our limited view on things. But I also think that people also connect with it in a, yeah, unironically, yes, way. And especially lately with uh, themes from the Metal Gear Solid series making their way into pop culture. So this is me doing a sort of pseudo segment here called getting a lot of big boss baby vibes. <laughs> you, this, is not a, this is not a game. This is not a quiz. I just want to pick your brain, Manu, because you have a very strong and learned history with uh, Metal Gear Solid to the extent that you did the podcast Sounds Frontieres podcast where you laid it out in such a, a consumable order. What are some examples of media, whether video game or not, that just like you connect with? It's like that's given me big boss baby vibes. Whew, okay, let's see. Um, God, I hate I hate to go to the Marvel well right away. But the minute I stepped out of Captain America, the Winter Soldier, I'm like, that was a Metal Gear movie. Um, <laughs> and I know people have thrown that at other Marvel movies. Um, people have thrown that at like things like Tenet and Inception. And I think there are qualities of those that remind me of Metal Gear. Um, I think the reason Captain America, the Winter Soldier does is tends to be more superficial. It feels like it borrows a lot of set pieces. Like it has an opening on a tanker. Um, it has this uh, iconic elevator fight, which is similar to the one in Metal Gear Solid 1 where uh, Snake is in the elevator with the guys with stealth ammo. Um, there's a guy with a giant Gatling gun on a highway that reminds me of Vulcan Raven. There's a secret AI that's kind of like faded green that's controlling everything. That's uh, the Zola in the bottom of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, I'm just spoiling Winter Soldier here, who kind of gave me the same vibes as the Colonel AI from... Um, Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, so there's a lot of things like that, that I wouldn't say it's like the ethos of Metal Gear Solid, but kind of like the superficial level of what Metal Gear Solid is. Um, the American government's the bad guy in the end, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. that, that definitely gave me uh, Metal Gear Solid vibes. The other answer I have for this, it kind of preempts your question of what I would recommend um, <laughs> in terms of uh, Metal Gear, you know, based off of Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, and that is uh, The Matrix Reloaded. Um, I think that is something that like fully interrogates what the first thing was in its order, what the original was, what The Matrix was, what Metal Gear Solid 1998 was. Um, I think there is something in there that's supposed to leave you a little bit confused at the end. Um, and it is a big info dump at the end in both pieces of media, but in The Matrix Reloaded and Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, but I do think there's something also very hopeful in the ending of both of those things. Um, but it's hope that you kind of have to find for yourself, almost paraphrasing Solid Snake at the end of this game by saying that. So I think The Matrix Reloaded is something that it's almost concurrent to Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, because uh, I, it came out in like 2003, I believe. But it was in production right after, you know, Matrix, uh, the first one came out in 1999. So it was something that was almost developing alongside Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, and for it to hit a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same structures, um, and a lot of the same ideas, that's the other one. And that's a place where I clearly can tell that no one is really taking influence from the other, although I would say Kojima does take some, some things from the original Matrix into Metal Gear Solid 2. Yeah, I'm glad you shouted out the Matrix specifically, because uh, especially the Matrix Reloaded in terms of where the Wachowskis were creatively then, because I do think that, I think people try and draw comparisons like, oh, who is the filmmaker equivalent of Kojima, like what is Kojima the the ex of? And I think the Wachowskis is the perfect example of that, where they've been working for years until the big thing happened. The big thing basically rewrites the book of like, in their case, um, the Wachowski sisters case, like action cinema and big blockbuster making cinema. 
and storytelling. And then Kojima basically like video games as a concept, adding a cinematic language to it. And we'll talk about that when we get into the game. But like, I think that the Wachowskis and Kojima are a very good example of that. The Wachowskis are so interesting in how they handle film with the lead up to um, Matrix Reloaded. There was like the transmedia phenomenon, which isn't not because they're trans women, but because the, the, the phenomenon of things like having multiple mediums mm-hmm. being, and I swear this is not a pun. This was <laughs> what it was time like enter the matrix was a video game that was up lead up to the matrix reloaded, which is supposed to like explain what is the deal with those albino twins? <laughs> like it just introduces those characters and like gives them a background. So people who played the game can have an appreciation for that. But people who are just going from the matrix to the matrix reloaded, don't feel like they like, do I need to play a video game to understand this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's just like an interesting relationship with media and trying to like push the limits of what you can do with a franchise that wasn't so corrupted by a big machine because the people were like making this movie had like such a sense of control and had like were bursting at the seams with ideas about how to handle this. And of course, the big thing with the Wachowskis is like how uncompromising they were making that trilogy. Yeah, no, I think that that that's very good. That's a very good shout there. Yeah. Um, and it's not the same way, but I think they're both equally like the Wachowskis and Kojima, very thoughtful about the production of the thing that they're making. Um, one thing I love to shout out about Matrix Reloaded is that they got like, what, 200, 300 used cars that Ford Motors weren't going to use because they didn't pass certain whatever. Um, so they were able to recycle those for the highway scene. They constructed that highway and then they tore it all down and everything that was scrapped was helped turn into affordable housing in Mexico. Um, I don't think Kojima has done anything that awesome, um, but it's just like they're thinking about what they're doing. What what are the things that they are using to make the art um, that they want to make? And like, what kind of impact does it have on the world around them? Um, and that kind of thoughtfulness in the actual production, when you compare that to like we were talking about Marvel movies or Star Wars TV at this point, where it feels like an assembly line where they just have a Star Wars machine where they press a button um, and it creates or turns out Star Wars content. Um, this is actually fully thinking about the production process beyond just kind of the narrative you're putting on the screen. Right. Yeah. It is uncompromising. It's thoughtful. It's not for everybody, but it means so much to the people that do connect with it. And I do think that's why the Wachowskis are like possibly the best um, film equivalent of what Kojima is doing. People will say Tarantino because of how Kojima wears the influences on his Mm -hmm. sleeve in terms of where he takes things from and that's what invites the getting metal gear vibes from this is how much <laughs> he takes from michael bay's the rock or uh james bond and just james bond beginning <laughs> all of it but the wachowskis also do that like that their stuff is in a blender and put out in a new way and reinterpret it into a new form and it becomes transformative and also definitive in how it depicts those things but that being said man Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning sure gave me Metal Gear vibes. Oh, yes. I would say that is also very much along those vibes as well. The entity and the kernel AI might as well be one and the same. The entity, the kernel AI, just the general presence of masks in terms of like Mm -hmm. having your reality be doubted at any given point. Is this character gone? Is this character real? Who is this character? Just a a good spy thriller uh, that is handling the anxieties of AI and Dead Reckoning in particular in a way that Metal Gear Solid 2 was doing 22 years ago. And, uh, you know, mentioned James Bond. You mentioned this uh, talking about it on your podcast, but No Time to Die uh, definitely felt like a weird thing where the thing that Metal Gear Solid was taking so much from now feels like is touching the stuff that Metal Gear Solid was touching thematically 20, 20 years after the fact. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, the nano machines or whatever they call them in uh, No Time to Die. But it's definitely like, it's almost similar to what we were talking about with Uncharted, but in a less derogatory way, where like the influences are like, it's reflecting back on its influences at this point. Um, and now it almost creates kind of like a dialectic between Metal Gear Solid and James Bond, where now they're kind of always going to be in conversation with each other. Who knows, maybe the future James Bonds will be nothing like Metal Gear Solid. But I think it's kind of entered that phase where everything that influenced Metal Gear is now being influenced by Metal Gear. Yeah. And that's the nature of influence. There's a certain point in time where the things that are taken inspiration from sort of like grow alongside each other. I feel like the the relationship that Ghibli films and Zelda games have isn't purely coincidental mm-hmm. in terms of what they're taking from each other. I'm sure Zelda is taking more often than it's giving, but you just cannot deny the comparison there. And, uh, you know, with Tenet, I almost feel like Nolan and Kojima are like, they both feel like people who are trying to fight to be the most like James Bond influenced person in the world. Now that we got the big boss baby vibes out of the way, and that's surely not going to come up again when we talk about the game. One last thing before we get into get into the weeds here. Uh, we got to address an elephant in the room, specifically an elephant rendered in Unreal Engine 5, Metal Gear Solid Delta Snake Eater. Now, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater was the game we talked about the first time. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts on it? I feel like we just have to address it because I was, you know, we did Snake Eater before. I I am not optimistic about it. Um, and I think this this is almost irrelevant of what we've seen of Metal Gear Solid Delta or what we heard about it. Um, I think it just goes back to that core Kojima ethos that we've talked about is the fact that his games are very fine-tuned to the medium and not just the medium, but the, like, time and space of that medium like his metal gear solid 3 is fine-tuned to the playstation 2 it is built for that machine its aesthetics are built for that machine and bringing it into you know unreal style graphics like yeah it looks good in the sense that it looks like how i think a triple a kind of photorealistic video game should look like at this time but i think it kind of takes away some of the charm of the art design um, which is something I know, you know, you've talked about with the Zelda games as well. Um, like there's a style to it, whether it's the like piss yellow filter or the way that like, you know, shapes and camo are rendered. Um, it's, I don't know, it's kind of impressive in what he does with the hardware, where it's just kind of throwing it in the Unreal Engine to recreate it and giving it controls that are similar to um, the Fox Engine controls or maybe the 3DS version of Metal Gear Solid 3, which had some of like the crouch walking functionality which is Mm -hmm. all all I think you really need to kind of modernize the look and feel of that game. You know, maybe shoulder buttons for the guns, but that's it. I don't know if it's going to actually really capture the magic of that game. I think it might be a very cromulent visual update if that's something you are looking for, Um, but it's not really something that I'm looking for. Like, graphics don't really turn me off. (laughs) Like, if they're Mm -hmm. in the sense that if they're, like, dated or I'm playing a game from 20 years ago, it doesn't bother me that it looks like a game from 20 years ago. I know some people that's a thing. Um, but that's not really uh, a concern of mine. Um, I'm hoping it's good. I will definitely play it. I think just for the sake that the first one, you know, the original might be my favorite game of all time. I will give it a pass just so I can either enjoy it again or critique it thoroughly. Um, one or It's either going to be one or the both. But I think it's more likely that I'm going to be on the negative end just based on what I hear. And, you know, if, if like Kojima was redoing it or someone I felt was kind of like up to his snuff or quality, like a Yoko Taro or something like that, maybe, you know, I'd be more into it. But Konami, 
as much as like, I, let's say I enjoy the fact that the Metal Gear Solid collection exists and that I have access to it and that I can access some new stuff through it. It feels just kind of very half-assed. It basically just kind of went into their archives, their records, and they just kind of put it all together on a disc. And it's not even like on a disc. You have to like download and play each individual game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it, it feels like it was very low effort. Um, or minimal effort, uh, and I feel like that's kind of the same. I, I, I don't want to disparage, like let's say, the developers working on it. It does look good, um, but I just don't know if it's going to have that extra magic or that Kojima mojo um, that really will make it sing as a game. Right. You know, like I think you said it very well, and like I really appreciate your insight into it. Like I have my like stupid boy thoughts about it, and then I also have like you know my more like you know specific critiques, like you said, like. I will never say this about any piece of media ever again. Turn the piss filter back on. <laughs> Turn the piss filter back on. I think it would go such a long way in like my issues with how it all looks is if you just like gave me the option to make it look a little bit more pissy. Because again, like the art direction and the visual design and the colors choices used for these characters and their models and everything like that. I mean, you can make it you can make the thing where it's like it was hiding the limitations of itself, but I think that the whole of art is is limitation. All art is limitation of something. It is the whole part about art is that you can't render it real mm-hmm. and you're just trying to create a reality, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, like it's totally fine for people to, I don't object to remakes or like remasters that do graphical upkeep, but I also believe 100% in like making it a standard that you are able to switch between the two. As much as I respect Bluepoint, I also think that like the original Shadow of the Colossus is better looking and more artfully considered than the the more objectively better looking remake quote unquote Mm -hmm. yeah no i do think that like the conversation of like were they trying to make it look real or were they trying to like show you what they feel like a reality is if that makes sense and like if you look at painting that way or illustrating that way that somebody's not trying to make something look as real as possible but give you a version of a reality i think that that would change our relationship with trying to make things look as good as possible and try and make things look as not pretty, but like focus more on the design and the the, the art of something than the reality of it, like yes. believability and it, intentionality of aesthetics, um, and mm-hmm. then aesthetics that doesn't champion photorealism above all else. I think that's kind of what we're going for. Yes, to put it in a single sentence. Yes, um, all that to say, turn the piss filter back on. But the really, I think it's interesting. I have no thoughts about the remake. I probably won't buy it. If it goes on deep sale and like it has like respect, I'll check it out. But I already have two versions of Metal Gear Solid 3 in my home at this point. Mm-hmm. But I do think, especially since it's a Konami product uh, without the involvement of Kojima, it's interesting in relation to the upcoming Silent Hill 2 remake uh, being developed by an outside company being published by uh, Konami, whereas this is being developed internally, mostly, and is also being published by Konami, you know, about an IP that they have basically burned all bridges with but yet won't do anything with in silent hill 2 it's a remake uh, a completely new experience from the ground up is taking design inspiration from the recent resident evil remakes and look i have not played silent hill 2 so i cannot have speak to the personal experience with it but my observation is that people who love silent hill 2 don't love it because it is a good action video game it's funny that Konami's playing both sides and neither side of what extreme they're working on is going to work for them long term. Like Metal Gear Solid 3, untouched, pristine, 
we're not doing anything like like we understand the game is canonically perfect. We don't want to ruin that experience, but we also want more money from Metal Gear without Kojima. But also Silent Hill 2, a game that is equally held in regard and like when people reflect on the golden age of Konami video games and they're like, well, we can fuck that one up. That's fine. No one has been able to play this game for like 20 years anyway. We can fuck this one up. I, I just think I just find that that aspect of it interesting. The reason I'm telling you all this is because I'm playing both sides so that I always come out on top. Yeah, no, I really think it is. Um, it's weird how how the perception of these games changes over time. And I think we see similar trends just in the way we talk about movies and visual effects as well. Um, I think, I don't know, are we collectively losing our imaginations and we just need things to look as realistic as possible um, and as facsimile to the real thing? What is the real thing? Who even knows? This is a good game to interrogate that with. Let's talk about the the game that I'm scared to talk about because of how much there is to talk about. I feel like it's a game I can't fully do justice, but we're not here to make sure that we cover every corner. I just want to make sure that we get to the heart. So we're covering one of the most significant games in the medium, one of my very favorites and one of your very favorites, which is why we're talking about it. Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty is an action-adventure stealth game that was developed and published by Konami. Very excited to talk at you about things you already know, Manu, but this is for the listener. <laughs> Metal Gear Solid 2 is the second Metal Gear game we've covered on the show. We previously covered Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater in the show's very first episode, which is actually set decades before this game. If you're already confused, I'm sorry, but the timeline is maybe the least confusing part of Metal Gear Solid 2. Metal Gear Solid 2 is the fourth game in the Metal Gear series, a franchise that started with Metal Gear on the MSX2 in 1987, followed by Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake in 1990, also on the MSX2, and then Metal Gear Solid in 1998 for the original PlayStation. Metal Gear Solid 2 was directed by Hideo Kojima, produced by Hideo Kojima, designed by Hideo Kojima, and written by Tomokazu Fukushima and Hideo Kojima. Hideo Kojima's name is all over this game, but video game development on this scale, of course, is not accomplished by just one person, and the success of Metal Gear Solid 2 is due to the many people who worked on this incredible game and series. Some other important names we should mention at this time include Director of CG Design, Takashi Mizutani, Director of Program, Kazunobu Uehara, Director of Motion Design, So Toyota, Assistant Director, Yoshikazu Matsuhana, sound director Kazuki Muraoka, and music by Harry Gregson Williams and Norihiko Hibono. The ending theme, Can't Say Goodbye to Yesterday, was written and produced by Rika Muranaka, and art direction and character and mechanical designer Yoji Shinkawa is a significant force in this game's design, 
and visuals. This is the part where I need to mention that I think the cover art for Metal Gear Solid 2 goes extremely fucking hard, and it is my favorite box art for any video game ever, even divorced from its meta implications and its cultural impact and reaction. I just think that the, the image just goes really fucking hard. Would that all video games have Yoji Shinkawa do the art for them? Absolutely. Yeah. Have you ever seen his Last of Us art? Uh, oh, I think I have, actually. I think I've seen little bits of it on Twitter. Um, looks yeah. great. Yeah, I think he just drew, like, the one picture. But, like, man, it was really fucking cool. Let's see AI do that. Not really. I don't want you to try. <laughs> I just, you can't do that. Mm-mm. Anyone who types Yoji Shinkawa into an AI prompt, I will come and beat you with a sack of doorknobs. I uh, I got a girl sniper aimed at your house right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, two thirds of them are women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lady sniper, huh? Didn't you know that two thirds of the world's greatest assassins are women? Anyway. Chris Zimmerman Salter was the voiceover director for this game and the rest of the Metal Gear franchise, starting with Metal Gear Solid. She also serves as the voice director for several other popular franchises, including the No More Heroes series, the Bayonetta series, and Marvel's Spider-Man, which I just covered in the previous episode. It's important to note that she is a significant part of how we hear these characters as English speakers. So yeah, just a few names I want to shout out in addition to the man who we've, whose name we keep throwing around, Hideo Kojima. Video game development is complicated and hard, and even though one person can have a vision and a language and a book and everything, it takes so much to throw these things together. And he has a team that he trusts to help realize that vision, and it's through that collaborative process that we're able to get such incredible games. As for the plot, Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) Good luck. The Hudson River, two years ago. We had classified intelligence that a new type of Metal Gear was scheduled for transport. The whole thing stank, but our noses have been out in the cold too long. We open on the George Washington Bridge during a heavy thunderstorm. A man walking on the bridge is wearing a black poncho that obscures everything but his black boots and the lower part of his face, where he can be seen smoking a cigarette. Let's speed it up. Let's let's, let's go faster (laughs) than this. Um... It's Snake. It's been two years since the Shadow Moses incident from the first Metal Gear Solid game in 1998. Uh, Solid Snake and his late-in-life roommate Otacon are now part of Philanthropy, a non-government organization recognized by the UN, but still considered fringe. Their cause? In the proliferation of Metal Gear technology. Bipedal, autonomous mechs outfitted with nuclear weaponry. Solid Snake boards a ship on the Hudson River, the USS Discovery, transporting a new type of Metal Gear. Having learned about this via a tip from Otacon's estranged sister, Emma Emmerich, or EE. Snake intends to photograph and expose its existence and the US military's intention to use it. A group of Russian mercenaries also board the ship, led by Russian commander Sergei Galukovich and Revolver Ocelot, a former adversary of Snake during the Shadow Moses incident. Ocelot manages to hijack the Metal Gear and betrays the Russian mercenaries, revealing his true allegiance to the Patriots. Ocelot, upon seeing Snake, begins a spasm and begins talking like Liquid Snake, Snake's brother, who, like Snake, was a clone of the world's greatest soldier, Big Boss. It's very hard to talk about this game without talking about Metal Gear Solid, for a lot of reasons. Basically, Ocelot lost his arm in the last game, Liquid Snake lost his life, Ocelot saw saw the opportunity there and was like, yoink, took the arm, it's now causing Ocelot's personality to shift between his own and Liquid Snake's. If you're confused about this, don't worry, it took him three games to explain this. Anyway, Liquid Ocelot blows up the tanker, escapes with the new Metal Gear Ray, Philanthropy, 
is presumed responsible and Solid Snake, who was on board during the explosion, is presumed dead. Two years later, an offshore cleanup facility located 30 kilometers from Manhattan, New York, called Big Shell, is hijacked by a terrorist organization calling themselves the Sons of Liberty. Among their hostages is U.S. President James Johnson, who was touring the facility at the time. They hold him and the facility ransom for $30 billion, threatening to blow it all up, creating an ecological disaster if their demands aren't met. A special soldiers operative from Snake's former Black Ops unit, Foxhound, sends their new operative, Raiden, to neutralize them. Shenanigans ensue. The gameplay, it's tactical espionage action. You get it or you don't. It's stealth. It's basically the, the, the game series that defined what stealth is for us. This is not as sophisticated as Metal Gear Solid 3, but it is a tremendous step forward in stealth game uh, games in general. We'll talk about the sophistication of these gameplay mechanics when we get into the proper discussion, but we got to move on here. Metal Gear Solid 2 was released in North America on November 13th, 2001 for the PlayStation 2. Other games released in North America in 2001 include Castlevania Circle of the Moon, Devil May Cry, Final Fantasy X, Grand Theft Auto 3, Gran Turismo 3, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 3, Halo Combat Evolved, Eco, Jack and Daxter, The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages and Seasons, Max Payne, Silent Hill 2, SSX Tricky, Star Wars Rogue Squadron 2, Rogue Leader, and Super Smash Bros. Melee. Manu, I typically play the games that I pick to the house. Have you played any of these games? Um, I would say I played about half of those. Um, I have not beaten all of those, um, like Devil May Cry, but uh, Final Fantasy X, I played and beat, uh, ditto GTA 3, Tony Hawk 3 as well. That's one of my favorite games. Um, a big reason I bought the PlayStation 2 was knowing that Metal Gear Solid 2, GTA 3, and Final Fantasy X were all coming to the system because um, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 came out a year after the console came out. So I had all these games on my radar. Um, I played a surprising lot of them. I played uh, Rogue, Rogue Leader as well. I was playing a lot more games. I eventually played Halo. I did play Halo until I would go to college a couple years later, um, but I did get really into Halo for a while. Um, so I did end up playing a lot of the games you mentioned there. Yeah. There is a very compelling case to be made for 2001 being the best year of all time for video games. I looked at the top 25 games of all time on Metacritic, and three of these games were on it. So, yeah, big, big year. I think it means a lot to people. It is definitely the game that the year that kicks off the PlayStation 2 proper, even though it'd been out for a year at that point. Just so many, so many big games and defining games coming out for this generation, really pushing 3D forward. Another thing that we'll talk about soon, but. All these incredible games, what ultimately made you decide on Metal Gear Solid 2 to talk about today? A lot of reasons. I think ultimately I decided when I did come back, I would want to talk about Metal Gear Solid again, as opposed to one of the like handful of other games that are really important to me. Um, but ultimately, I think this is the game I get the most enrichment out of and can perhaps enrich your audience most with in terms of how I think about these games, how well I know these games. Um, and I was leaning towards Metal Gear Solid 5 at first because I feel like that's a game that needs championing um, or at least championing in a way that like if you love the other Metal Gear games, you still should love this game. And let me explain to you why um, something I spent a lot of time on our podcast talking about. It was our longest coverage. It's also the longest Metal Gear game that probably goes hand in hand with that. Um, I talked thought about doing other Metal Gear games like Peace Walker. Um, I'd really love to talk about the politics of that game specifically because how often do you get a Western AAA game where the main character is modeled after Che Guevara and it isn't a negative portrayal? 
Um, I think that by itself is worthy of a three-hour podcast. But ultimately, even with Metal Gear Solid 3 as my favorite of the series, more as just like my comfort game, I think Metal Gear Solid 2 has perhaps the best argument for video games as art. I think it's the most consequential of the games, both in terms of games and what it means to pop culture broadly, um, whether that's prescience or Kojima identifying trends in culture at the time. And I think it's it's the game I wanted to make sure I talked about on your podcast and not <laughs> leave it to someone else, um, just because I think it is the Metal Gear game to talk about. Because I think when you really want to crystallize what makes Kojima the game director that he is, I think a lot of that is more baked into this game than it is any of his other titles. I think you're right about that. Like, I think that you can argue every day about like what the best Metal Gear game is. And I think a lot of that's personal, but it's also just because like this is a series that despite having so many established tropes and uh, quirks and is so singular, each game is so different that you can see a good argument to be made for any of them being a, a, the best or a favorite. But I think that if you were to point at one game possibly being the most consequential for the medium, it would be this one. As important as Metal Gear Solid is in 1998, for a lot of reasons and as much as like snake eater is important for a lot of reasons and even v i think we'll see long term will have a lot of impacts i think that two is probably the one i would point out and be like this is the most important uh or consequential at the very least there's so much to talk about i mean you dedicated an entire podcast to metal gear clearly but there's a lot to talk about and we'll touch on like the the cultural implications but this is about a personal connection to something and this is a game that you felt like you had to be the one to talk about. And I am so glad to talk about it with you. So let's go back in time a little bit. Uh, it's 2001. You got a PlayStation 2 because you were anticipating this game coming out for it. What was your first encounter like with this game specifically? Oh, well, well, this, this gets into a lot of fun stuff because my first encounter with Metal Gear Solid 2 was not the official game release, but rather the demo disc release. I think it came with Zone of Enders or Zone of Enders 2 or something. Um, that had like part of the tanker stage, not the entire tanker stage. Um, I think it cuts off before the kind of end of it where you have to take the pictures of Metal Gear Ray in front of the Commandant. But um, it had a good portion of the tanker stage where you play a solid snake. Um, so I got to play that not through Zone of Enders, but I think Blockbuster just had it to rent um, or one of my friends had it. But I played it before the official release. So I was stoked about this. Um, I'm what say 16 17 years old um so this is like one of the first times i've really been hyped for a game in my life and um like i think ocarina of time was like the first one where it's like i was anticipating a single game for years um and this is probably the follow-up to that because the first metal gear solid was not on my radar until i played it but then i'm like this changed my life something we talked about on the first episode uh we did together um so metal gear solid 2 i was looking forward to for multiple years um, I had bought the PlayStation 2 um, specifically knowing that. Um, this is when I fell off buying the latest Nintendo system. I did not get a GameCube. The N64 was the last one I'd have until a Wii. I was really excited for this. Um, I was really into it. Um, I had it pre-ordered and it was an experience. Um, <laughs> I definitely knew I liked it like all the way through, even with the ride and twist, which I know we'll talk about. Um, but I knew that I just played something that I really enjoyed. Um, I wasn't sure exactly what it was telling me or what exactly all these things meant that were experienced by me, but I knew that it was something. 
Um, and I like would beat it over and over again in the like subsequent months. It's not like I played it once. It was a good 12 hour experience and I'm done. Um, I went back and played it over and over and over again, even though it wasn't quite coinciding with um, the release. Um, this was also the first time I really started to encounter really like in-depth video game writing, like critical and meta theorizing pieces. What is this game about? I think Metal Gear Solid 2 was the first time I really saw like a robust kind of conversation or discourse around a game. Not a lot of it was healthy because it was definitely saturated with a lot of people complaining about Raiden or how the game wasn't fulfilling their you know wishes in terms of what they wanted from a military action espionage game. But I do remember liking it. I do remember like my kind of peer group immediately really liking it. Um, it took until I kind of encountered the broader opinion online. And this is still in the kind of infancy days of the internet or the in internet being accessible to everyone. Um, so really, this is also the first time I'm really seeing like the broader internet's take on this. And it was far less positive than mine was. Um, and that was also kind of you know, important to me as someone who's like terminally online now and mm -hmm. very involved in the, specifically the critical spheres around games and movies and television. Um, this was also kind of my entryway into that as well. Yeah. The internet is the enemy of both this game <laughs> and, and uh, life and certainly prescient. Like this game basically is already like anticipating its own critical reception. And it's basically like, man, the internet's going to suck. Is it? In, in more ways than you know, Metal Gear, in more ways than you know. It's so good to talk to someone who played this game at the time, because I think that that is crucial in understanding this game in particular. Uh, you said like, you know, people in real life were generally positive on it and it was only the internet that you encountered discourse. Did you ever feel like maybe I'm wrong for loving it so much or were you pretty firm in your belief seeing uh, all this play out? Uh, no, I think I definitely had some of that doubt a little bit. As you probably know, um, I do have a tendency to kind of want to love the things that I already like. Um, like I'll be inclined to like a new Spider-Man thing or a new Star Wars thing, or my heart will want to like it. And it might take a little bit of time for it to be like, oh, that was fucking garbage. Mm -hmm. So like I wanted to like it. And th this was like the first, like, do you know how many people even like three, four years after uh, this game came out, people would be like, oh yeah, after Metal Gear Solid 2, I was no longer interested in the franchise. Um, and I never even touched Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, it really felt like a jumping off point for so many people. Um, I, I don't want to blame them for not getting it. I, I still, it's not an easy game to get per se, and it's not necessarily about getting it. I don't want to say that like that's the goal of art or our appreciation thereof. But um, it was definitely something where it's like there's very few things where I've been like so like oh yeah this is great, and everyone else has been like eh, not sure about it. That like it makes me doubt it because I'm also a self doubting person. I'm someone mm -hmm. who's inclined to think that I am wrong um, <laughs> when I come across a disagreement of stuff. Um, this is also something that, funnily enough, happened with The Matrix Reloaded. Um, I was like, that that was one of the best movies I've ever seen. And then to see the critical reaction and people were like, eh, eh, it was something that definitely affected uh, me in that way, in a very similar way. But um, I was pretty sure about it. And, you know, time kind of vindicated me on that. But, you know, that's <laughs> that's yeah. it. As someone who lived through both, I, I think you could tell me that maybe The Matrix Reloaded took a little bit longer <laughs> for people to mm -hmm. come around on because at least... Uh, with Metal Gear Solid 2, there was like that, but you can't deny the game. You can't deny that you can shoot an individual bottle in a bar. <laughs> yes. Like um, it, it was one of the few places or few places, um, but it was definitely a spot where there was so much to technically marvel at in the game that I don't think anyone was like kind of dismissing it out of hand as like, this is a crummy game or not a well thought out game. I just think it 
it takes uh, narrative leaps and also I'd say, I'd say metatextual leaps that kind of challenge the gamer. Um, I think those are very important to what this game is. Um, and it's unsurprising. Like we talked about, it was a very, it wasn't as evolved as it is now. Um, you know, games back then, we were just starting to get into the first generation of people who started becoming adults with video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, you know, that was still kind of on the tail end. Very few people were in their 20s and 30s who had played video games for most of their lives. You know, we were just starting to come of age. We have like, the teen philosopher mind where like Nietzsche is the extent of our depth of understanding of philosophy and like critical thinking. It was a lot of people kind of trying to grasp at straws who might not have all the tools available to them to like really analyze what kind of art this game is. And, you know, I I think those things came with time. Um, And I think, you know, video games kind of evolved where we were able to look back on it with like kind of a more collectively refined lens on it. um, That just wasn't present in 2001. Yeah. I think, uh, you're getting at something here which is like gamers saw a guy who read books and got scared yes very much (laughs) yeah a guy who read so many books that he had to put it all down into video games and man what a product and yeah no you're right i mean like i was reading uh reviews that were coming out at the time to try and make sense of like this game's meta score versus like the discourse that it caused because like with the matrix reloaded it was like a critically divisive and audience divisive and all that uh you know your kids are going to love it, etc. But with uh, Metal Gear Solid 2, like regardless of like its plot failings and narrative, like not failing plot discourse or like decisions that it makes, like the, like the, that stuff was immediate. But like all the reviews, even the super positive ones, were like, "I don't know about the plot, guys. I don't know. I don't know." Which is insane to me now, looking in, because when I played this game, I'm like, "Man, this game's like 60 percent plot, guys. <laughs> I don't know how you can." say like a game's incredible but the story's dog shit Mm -hmm. i can't like for this kind of game no it's not like a it's not like uncharted where you're just shooting things 80 percent of the time (laughs) i don't know yeah uh yeah no i mean like i said it's a challenging plot and it's definitely not what video games were definitely giving you and i'm sure we'll get into that um where it's not just giving you your male wish fulfillment power fantasy where you run through things and blow things up and that's the best way to do things and you become the awesome super dude and have sex at the end this is not that kind of game. And we're also in a place where video game narratives were kind of in their fledgling state as well. You know, besides like maybe say RPGs, um, not many video games were necessarily defined by their plot at this point. And, you know, people were like, well, it's a video game. It doesn't really need to have a good plot as long as if the mechanics are there and it's fun otherwise. So there's a lot of ways to kind of apologize for it. But um, I do think it does reflect that. I don't think people were really conscious of or I don't want I don't want to blame people, but I think there was just kind of a kind of fundamental failure to appraise it in the time, and I wasn't able to appraise it in the time, or I wasn't able to put the words um, that it would be necessary to appraise it properly. Um, but I just think it is something that I think it almost helped us develop as like video game critics and writers and podcasters. Granted, there are no podcasts in two thousand one, mm-hmm. uh, but like I think this is the kind of game that actually pushed the critical spirit sphere forward as much as it pushed its own medium forward as well right it was willing to do a lot that everybody learned from like we'll get into that too but yeah like taking into consideration the time of of release 2001 in the wake of 9-11 a a game that is already coming with a critique of america as an entity and all that which we'll get into of course later but just touching on the, the specific times of like time and place when this is coming out november of 2001 you're absolutely correct that video game narratives are still fledgling and people were also not used to video game narratives being this robust in a game where you had a gun in your hand. Um, 
this is like such a new and specific thing. And it's so weird to think about how massively and commercially successful this game was. And also how, like, which is a contributing factor to its uh, controversy because it's like, I don't know if, it, I don't, I'm not saying this to be dismissive of broad audiences, but like, this is a game that would struggle to come out today, not as is, but just like, we see the discourse around games that are not like The Last of Us Part Two, right? Mm -hmm. Also does a very similar plot beat. And this game makes space for protagonist switch is in video games. Just that, just just that very basic concept. Like your uh, Red Dead Redemptions, your Last of Us Part Twos, the, 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 the protagonist switch becomes not a staple, but it does become like a thing that you recognize in big games that this game was able to create the space for. The way that we approach shooting, even, this game makes so much space for in the games that become critically acclaimed. And you have to just appreciate the trailblazing aspect of it. And the fact that even before all of that, this game was loved because it was doing so many things for the first time. It, it, it's, it's, it's a marvel. But before we can talk in depth about any of that, we do have to talk about how people can play this game in a segment I do every episode called No Country for Old Games. Remember when I did this at the end of the episode? I'm so glad yep. I did this in the middle now. <laughs> All right. Before we talk about Metal Gear Solid 2, we have to talk about how readily available this game is to those who are interested in checking it out. The subject of video game preservation means a great deal to me, as you know, Manu, as someone who's been here before, and as you do, listener, who has listened to more than one episode. If this is your first, get ready to learn. I believe that video games are an art form. This video game is certainly uh, a, a testament to that. And people's personal connections to the video games that they have is a testament to that. But unfortunately, publishers don't have that same kind of relationship with video games. For them, it is profit-driven, and some people do not have an incentive, whether financial or otherwise, to keep older games available on modern hardware. This has made video games so uniquely difficult because think about having to have multiple devices to watch movies or read a book. Imagine that. Imagine that on top of all the problems that the preservation for books and movies have already. Anyway, I'm scared. And as we'll see in this conversation, the answer is not always so easy. Now, Manu, we spent a long time getting you back on because I wanted to get you back on. We had talked about it like basically within the year I first started the mm-hmm. show about getting you back on. But the big thing holding us back was we would just have the same conversation about the availability of the game. Uh, because Konami really dragged their feet. For those that didn't listen to the Metal Gear Solid 3 episode or just are generally unaware, <laughs> Konami's bad at it. Bad at a lot of things. But specifically, uh, back in November of 2021, they took the Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3 off of all digital storefronts uh, because of a licensing issue with the live-action archive footage those games used. And uh, since those licenses expired, that made previously not the most available games, but somewhat available games, totally unavailable. And I gave a very poor rating to Metal Gear Solid 3's availability. Now things have changed, and we'll get into that. In this segment, we're going to rate today's game on a scale of A 
So at arg, and arg is an expression of frustration and not in uh not me in any way advocating for piracy, which is illegal. Metal Gear Solid 2 was originally released on November 13, 2001 in North America and November 29th in 2001 in Japan. The Japanese version of the game included features not seen in a North American release, namely a boss survival mode, an early example of a boss rush mode where you face a gauntlet of games bosses in quick succession as either Raiden or Snake, as well as a casting theater mode in which you can view cutscenes from the main game and replace the character models. The game was also released in Europe in March 8th, 2002, much later than either Japan or North America, and included additional content as basically an apology for the wait. Kept you waiting. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Because gaming magazines and the fucking internet made people freely discuss spoilers of the game in the interim. So in addition to the content that was also on a Japanese release, the Europeans got an extra mode called European Extreme, an additional difficulty setting and not a term to describe the racism going on over there. (laughs) It also came with a DVD called The Making of Metal Gear Solid 2, featuring documentaries on the game's development, as well as all of the game's promotional trailers. Before we move forward, Manu, really quick question. Did you read about this content uh, that the other versions got and get a little bit jealous? (laughs) A little bit. Um, I mean, it's like, we're America. We should get it first, and we should get the most of it. That's just basically what America does. But, I mean, it was stuff that would be, you know, because back, you know, we didn't really have access to everything all the time, always. Um, So it was like, oh, I wish we had this. And then it'd be like a treasure when you'd find, like, a version of it scanned online for the first time or any of that kind of stuff. Um, European Extreme is a little bit of a meme in the Metal Gear, you know, solid community, or um, at least in the games. Um, it is kind of a difficulty level that would persist. There is a European Extreme in Metal Gear Solid 3 as well that is playable in the collection version. And then uh, they change it to like big boss difficulty by Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, but I, I do like that, you know, they, they thought about all the releases, like the releases were a part of it. Um, um, I believe I read an interview where Kojima was like, we would love to do day and date everywhere. And that wasn't very typical for games at this point. But like Metal Gear Solid 2 was one where we definitely wanted to get out into the American audience first because, you know, of the twist. Uh, I think he mentioned they were much more comfortable marketing right and upfront in the Japanese market um, where there's a lot more protagonists that kind of look and act like Raiden does, um, something I'm sure we'll talk about. But it's definitely, a, you know, perhaps a larger sell to an american audience or a western audience um i can't remember the reasons for the big european delay though um that one's kind of interesting part of me just hopes kojima hates the europeans like i do uh, <laughs> fuck them mm-hmm. <laughs> i think we should just outright address the, the the protagonist switch thing now we've danced around it a little bit but you play as snake for basically the first hour or two of the game depending on how good you are at figuring out what the the, the ship's like guiding you through and then you, you play as Raiden for the rest of it. We'll get into the details of that. But that was not communicated up front at all. And North Americans were shocked because the guy that they were playing as, I was on the cover, not, not the guy I'm playing as for the other 12 hours of the game. And that certainly was part of the reason that the controversy was so strong is that people didn't lead with that information. And then when the game came out two weeks early in America, the Japan, then Japan, they were like, they're going to figure they're going to learn so we may mm-hmm. as well like control the narrative here and like show them so they had like a preview event leading up to the release and like made ride in a part of the box art in japan and just anticipating the fact that like it's going to be a twist to one territory but not all of them and europeans just got fucked they were just like fuck you four months but here you can fight a boss mode <laughs> <laughs> but yeah 
it was exclusive to Japan and Europe for a little bit until Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance released on Xbox, Windows, and PlayStation 2. Substance was released as a time exclusive for the Xbox on November 4th, 2002 in North America, with the Windows and PS2 versions releasing in December of 2002 in Japan and March of 2003 in America and Europe. So it is possible to release them at the same time. Interesting. The main additions to Substance include the Boss Survival Casting Theater and European Extreme, as well as the as well as new extras, including a VR missions mode with 350 missions in a digitized computer environment, and also 150 alternative missions set in the maps of the story. Uh, there's also an additional mode called Snake Tales, five story-based missions where you play as Solid Snake on the big shell and one on the tanker where Snake encounters Meryl Silverberg from Metal Gear Solid. These are non-canonical and unrelated to the main game with story conveyed through text screens. They did not voice these over. This is just supplemental bonus. You guys wanted to play a snake, here's some more snake, goddamn. Um, the PS2 version of Substance also includes a skateboarding minigame where you play as either Snake or Raiden on maps themed after Big Shell. I didn't get to play this and I'll tell you why soon. Uh, the HD collection would become the next version of Metal Gear Solid 2 released, launched on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 in 2011, on the PlayStation Vita in 2012, and included HD editions of Metal Gear Solid 2, 3, and the PSP game Peace Walker, as well as ports of the original Metal Gear, Metal Gear 2, the HD conversions of Metal Gear Solid 2 that was handled by Bluepoint Games. It was based on substance release, including everything from that version, except the skateboarding minigame. To this day, I've never played the skateboarding minigame. Digital bundles were released as well as sold individually, so you're able to buy these on digital storefronts on the Xbox Marketplace as well as on the PlayStation Store for the PlayStation 3 specifically. Uh, the digital version and the disc were backwards compatible on the Xbox One and Xbox Series X and S, and the Metal Gear Solid games were even on Xbox Game Pass starting in September of 2019, then Disaster Strikes. November 2021, game's taken off, license expired, oh no, what the hell, Kiefer starts a podcast, complains about it, it's bleak, it's dark, arg. At least two of the most critically acclaimed games of all time that are crucial, crucial works in the video game canon, completely wiped from the face of the earth because somebody didn't want to renew a license, right? But we spoke of this negligence and how fucking stupid Konami is as a company already, Manu. I won't make you relive that. We'll say it again at some point, but I won't make you relive it. But it was impossible to buy these games legally for a period of time. Until. And the reason it took us so long to get you back on the show is because we had to wait until, I could say until, <laughs> on October 24th, 2023, a few weeks before, a few weeks ago, <laughs> Metal Gear Solid Master Collection Volume 1 was released. It includes the original Metal Gear Solid and its various re-releases, uh, the HD versions of Metal Gear Solid 2, the HD version of Metal Gear Solid 3, the MSX versions of Metal Gear and Metal Gear 2, and the NES ports of Metal Gear that Kojima had no involvement in and disowned publicly, as well as its sequel that he also does not acknowledge, uh, Snake's Revenge. We'll talk about that in a second. Once again, you cannot play the skateboarding minigame for Metal Gear Solid 2, but hey, for the first time, in almost two years, you can play Metal Gear Solid again, uh, specifically two and three. And now one has been available on these new consoles as well. That's also huge. PC, PlayStation 5, PlayStation 4 digital only, and Xbox Series X and S. So it is no longer an ARG. It's been upgraded. Manu, what do you think of the Master Collection? I think it's 
a suitable way to play the games. No, it's fine. I'm glad they collected it. I'm glad they're actually throwing in some extra stuff that they probably didn't need to, like those ports, um, like Snake's Revenge. Um, I'm glad they include some of the documentation, some of the storybook, the screenplays. Um, I'm glad they're doing all that. I haven't dug into all the features. So I think it's overall, it's a win. Um, I don't think they really did anything super impressive with it. They do have some nice layouts and menuing. But like I said, each game is its like kind of own executable package, which just feels kind of... This doesn't feel like an integrated experience. Like, I kind of wanted to like log into a Metal Gear hub um, as opposed to just like seeing like four different games running off this one disc that I have. So that's kind of a disappointment. But um, for the most part, I think it's good. Uh, most important thing to me is that these games are available in a format that most people can play, appreciate them in pretty close to what they were um, back then. Um, the only complaint I have, and this might be a user issue, not a game issue, um, one of the big problems with Metal Gear Solid's 1, 2, and 3 is that you couldn't pause during cutscenes, which was kind of an issue because if you pre you either had to sit there or watch for it, or if you pressed a button, it would just skip ahead and there's no way to like skip back or rewind. Um, this was fixed from Metal Gear Solid 4 on, and with the HD collection, specifically like when I was streaming it or playing a digital copy, you can just exit out to the PlayStation menu or like, you know, hit the PlayStation button and that would act as a pause. Um, but if you do like press the PlayStation uh, button on the PlayStation 5, the cutscene keeps playing in the background as it brings up kind of the mini menu at the bottom of the PlayStation 5 interface. Um, so I kind of wish they just had a basic pause uh, mm -hmm. built into it, which is kind of annoying that they don't. Other than that, I would say it's a it's a totally fine and acceptable way to preserve these games. I don't think they did anything super flashy with it, but they did throw in a couple extra things that is just like, so it's just above the bare minimum. Um, I would give it like a C in terms of just <laughs> like bringing together the whole package, but like an A in terms of it has now preserved Metal Gear Solid 1s, 2, and 3 in a way that everyone can play them on a current gen console. Yeah, and discs sometimes. Yes. Sort of. I'll get to that. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You also fixed my notes here. I forgot about PlayStation Now. PlayStation Now, this game was also streamable at a point uh, on the PlayStation Now, but PlayStation Now is dead, so it doesn't count anymore. Um, R.I.P. Bozo. Sorry. Um, but yeah, I think you and I are of the same mind. I'm a little bit more specific in my criticisms because unfortunately I watched a video <laughs> and uh, I have two perspectives here. One as a consumer and one as a person concerned with preservation. And my rating has no bearing on when I say like something is an A or an ARG or whatever. One, it doesn't count. It don't matter. None of this matters. Mm -hmm. I'm not an academic setting. We make jokes. We make jokes here. Uh, I do this as an exercise to highlight the issue of video game preservation and how strange and weird and difficult it is. And I was hoping when I got to do this episode with you, Manu, I could just be like, yeah, it's an A now. And then that was the whole conversation. <laughs> but no, I watched a video. I had to watch a video. I have my issues with it. The fact that the games aren't stored on the disc and have separate applications, like you said, uh, different executables, drives me up a wall. It should be housed in one place. The HD collection was housed in one place. And that was older. This is newer. Why is it different? Mm -hmm. Putting my disc in and having to download these games individually made me feel like a fucking chump. I was like, what was the disc for? Why did you give me the yes. disc? You lied to me. Why do I have to download a one gigabyte video game? I love the included extras. Uh, the screenplay books and the master books are incredible additions. I love the menu layouts, like you said. Uh, those are developed in Unity Engine, and it's just so very sleek and of the 
series that I really enjoy them. I like the different versions that you can play, like the fact that you can pick a different language and it's actually like a PAL version if you pick a European language mm-hmm. or the Japanese version of the game and not just not, it's not just a language pack. Really cool. They, the people who put this together clearly love the franchise because they didn't want you to just preserve the ability to play Metal Gear Solid. They wanted to give you the ability to appreciate it and they included the supplementary material. And on that level, I admire it. But there's problems. Uh, some fans uh, have vocally uh, expressed their displeasure that MGS 2 and 3 are straightforward ports of the Blueprint HD collection with very few adjustments. I noticed that when you boot it up 2 and 3 on the bottom right corner of the screen, it'll say Metal Gear Solid HD collection. You didn't even, oh, does it? Oh, my it God. Does. So, yeah, they didn't change it. And that is very true to the extent that Konami promised that these games would be upscaled to 1080p, and they're not. There's still 720p, which was the original resolution for the HD collection. I'm not grading them on that sort of metric, but it is. Mm-hmm. This is going to have to be patched in. They said they're going to fix it, but you've released the game anyway. Um, I, this team didn't have a lot of resources, and it's clear that they were trying to lead with the package before they could actually do that programming mm-hmm. needed to do the work here. The video that I watched that really illuminated this in a non discourse setting was a digital foundry video breaking down the issues. And I recommend watching that because I, they're way more eloquent than I am at breaking down the technological greatness and shortcomings of video games and their performance. So watch that if you want to learn more. But some basic points uh, and stuff that would actually be demerited on, on that kind of bearing is the Switch port of Metal Gear Solid 2 runs at 30 frames per second when the original game on the PlayStation 2 ran at 60. It's evident from the Switch gameplay how MGS2 was built for a certain frame rate disappointing and the pc version has uh, has its own issues as well you're required to use a gamepad for at least mgs1 not being able to switch between window windowed and screen version that's just disappointing no audio or visual flares it's it's half-baked they again they say they'll, they'll fix it but as of the time it's recording it's disappointing so yeah it's not an a uh because unfortunately a big deal for me is like I don't rate them on like oh is this the best version of the game you can possibly play mm-hmm. is it the prettiest is it the best if it were just 720p even though they promised 1080p I'd be like well look it's at least the blue point version but if you give me a game that was playing on 60 frames per second on its original hardware and on a switch where they tested out the, the, the hardware and showed that you could run the game at 60 frames per second and yet it runs at 30 frames docked or uh, undocked that shows me that like something went wrong here. And I can't recommend it as like the, the, the experience if it can't at least match the original in performance. And that's, that's, that's where these things get weird. So it's not an A or an ARG. It's an ah. <laughs> what went wrong here? Um, yeah. Um, I, th- mm-hmm. I was just going to say, all, I think all that stuff gets into kind of the intentionality of what Kojima is doing with, say, Metal Gear Solid 2, where he talked about during the development process of the game they were going to sacrifice um, some of the fidelity of the graphics um, and institute some motion blurring just so that he can do some of the visual things he wanted. So like the frame rate and the resolution are very specific things he thought about. They wasn't just like, oh, this is the industry standard and this is what the game should be at the time. Um, He was very much thinking about those things. Um, And you would like to see those kind of things preserved um, when you kind of release or remake or redo a game like this. Right. When the initial controversy was like, people complaining that Metal Gear Solid 1 was locked at 30 frames per second. I wasn't bothered by that because the original game ran at 30. But if there are just generally performance issues and 
little things that Digital Foundry pointed out too. Like if you, the HD collection from the Xbox 360, if you just put the disc in and play that, it's actually at a better visual fidelity than the current Volume 1 Master Collection is on Xbox Series X, X and S. It's, it's, it's strange and it's disappointing. Again, this is why video game preservation is such an interesting thing to talk about because even if you do port these games and make them more available than they've ever been, there's still some qualifiers that we have to put on that. But yeah, no, ultimately, I'm glad that people can play Metal Gear Solid for the first time ever. Hope that these, the situation improves over there. Hope it does. I highly recommend that Digital Foundry if you are into videos about performance and like the shortcomings that these things have. I hope that more people play Metal Gear Solid 2 because it's an incredible game that's incredibly personal to a lot of people. Uh, the game is claimed by players and critics alike as one of the best video games ever made. The game holds a 96 out of 100 on the review aggregation website Metacritic based on 42 critical reviews. It is currently the 24th highest rated video game on the website. It was also a tremendous commercial success. It was the fourth best-selling game of 2001 in North America. Grand Theft Auto 3 was number three. Madden NFL number two. Sorry, Madden, Madden NFL 2002 was number two. And Pokemon Gold, Silver, and Crystal was number one. So this game is going toe-to-toe with Grand Theft Auto 3 and Madden and Pokemon. Imagine that now. By 2004, this game had sold over 7 million units. It's clear this game means a lot to people, but we're not here to talk about the, the, the numerical accolades. It's, we're not talking about review scores mm-hmm. or anything like that. Sales numbers doesn't matter. We're here to talk about what this game means to you, Manu. So let's get into it. Hey, Jane. Hey, Jacqueline. Do you think the 2011 Egyptian revolution was caused by the chaos god Apophis? Uh, I mean, I think that's... How about the American Civil War and its ties to the Greco-Roman conflict? I, I mean, I think that's underselling the economic concern of slavery. Do you think centaurs just piss where they stand? Jacqueline, no offense, but I think there's something deeply wrong with you. It's not me, it's actually Rick Riordan, author of the Percy Jackson series. So you're saying that if you do a deep analysis of this incredibly popular and purportedly progressive, though overall well-intentioned author's works, you can uncover the deep rot behind American liberalism and capitalism as a whole? Yeah. Okay, I guess we could do a podcast about that. And we can make sure to take time each episode to find the incontrovertible proof that his characters are not cishet because Rick Riordan is not the boss of us. Listen to One Wise Girls every Friday, brought to you by the Moonshot Network. Now, normally, this is the part where I ask, what do you like about this game that you wish more video games would do? But this game is so biblical, I guess. Mm -hmm. It is so foundational to its future and the future of video games that it's hard to qualify it that way. So let's let's change the question, at least for today. What is special to you about this game? What is special to me? Um, I think it is a game that challenged what I thought video games were or could be. Um, I think it's a game that takes itself seriously as an experience. Um, and one of my favorite aspects of this game is even compared to other Metal Gear Solid titles, it's not really built around collectibles or anything like that. Um, there are certain things like dog tags and, you know, kind of rankings you can get at the end. But it's not really a game where you're trying to like necessarily like platinum it or 100%. It's very much a game that's about living through it and experiencing it. You know, you can say that about any game if you really, you know try hard enough i guess but it is a game that's not trying to be consumed with the trappings of like 
high scores or doing 100% of the things. It's very much about the relationship between the game and the player. And that's why so much of the game lives in the space in, the, in between that. That's why the colonel at a certain point is telling you to turn off your console and is directly talking to you, the player, and not to ride in the gamer, or sorry, ride in the character. It's, it's almost self-aware, like the kernel AI. Um, there is just something to it, something kind of like intrinsic about it. Kind of the same way the game describes the Patriots is not something like tangible and real, but something kind of ephemeral, kind of seeped into like the way things are. Um, this game is like exploring ideas in a way I did not think was possible through video games um, because most of them were blow things up, stab thing with sword, jump on top of little creature and it'll go flat. Um, that was the extent of a lot of things. And this game, I think, really made me think about games in a completely different way. It carries on a lot of the themes and memes of the first Metal Gear Solid, but I think the things that I love about Metal Gear Solid, I was only able to really vocalize and think about after having played Metal Gear Solid 2. Yeah, very well said. This game is so special in how it basically has to... I'm not saying it's the first game to ever even do something like this, but just think about it in these terms. Like so many video games, like to your point about like high score, whatever, just like how we perceive objectives. Like you said in the, you know, Metal Gear Solid 3 episode that we did, your relationship with uh, Metal Gear Solid was so radical because of how the game was always the game at all times. Even when you were in a cutscene, it was the same engine. It wasn't like Metal Gear, it wasn't like Final Fantasy 7, where it was, a, you know, an FMV cutscene after uh, the blocky polygonal gameplay <laughs> that you encountered it was committed to the consistent idea that this is always the world that you're in uh, to our point earlier about art design and direction it never tries to put a veil over your head it is fully committed to the world that it's made and the advancements that this game was able to make within the series itself like before you even talk about the impact on the world like i messed around with metal gear one and two and metal gear solid again before I played a little bit of two again for in preparation for this episode, I did a, the tanker stuff in Metal Gear Solid 2. And going from that, from Metal Gear Solid 1 was such a, oh my God, this is like the game that basically, and this is like the intention behind it and like the marketing behind it is like, this is the game that's ushering in the 21st century in terms of video games, in terms of, we, we got it guys. We finally figured out video games and graphics at the same time. It feels like the advancements, and this is not damning, of Metal Gear Solid when I say this. The advancements from Metal Gear Solid 1 to Metal Gear Solid 2 feel more substantial than the advancements from Metal Gear 2 to Metal Gear Solid. And again, that, that means Metal Gear 2 is a very sophisticated mm -hmm. game, especially for an 8-bit game from 1990. But I think the priorities of Metal Gear Solid were like presentation more than mechanic. Mm -hmm. And this game manages to get both in advancement. Yes, uh, the first Metal Gear Solid, I think, is on the same character arc as Ocarina of Time, where it took a previous 2D version uh, iteration and kind of blew that up to the 3D world. It kind of took the link to the past formula and brought it into a 3D space. Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake and Metal Gear Solid 1998 have a very similar relationship. There's a lot of overlap with story, um, the structure of the uh, plot. Um, and with just kind of the game, some of the bosses have a little bit of overlap. Whereas I feel Metal Gear Solid 2 feels like something that's truly original, despite it being a sequel, um, despite it being like the fourth version of Kojima re-entering this world with the Solid Snake-based game. 
it feels like something that's truly original, something truly different. I'd almost dare say it is kind of in the postmodern or Dadaist mode of art, um, which I don't think video games were anywhere near at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was conceptually something different. I think it's a very important thing to talk about it as a sequel um, because it is very much interrogating why was Metal Gear Solid a hit? Why did everyone love Solid Snake? Why are people into this? Why do you want to play this again? If you already loved Metal Gear Solid, what's the point in having another video game that's the same? Kojima talks about how this, he calls it the Hollywood game. And a lot of that is the very cinematic influences on the game and the cinematic presentation of it. But nothing is more Hollywood to me than the sequel. Um, and I think he is engaging that as well. Um, it's like, why can't we let things be? Why, why must we have another one of these things? I think something that he builds on into Metal Gear Solid 3, where it becomes the literal snake eating itself, this Ouroboros of content. Why must we have eight Marvel movies every year for the rest of our lives? Um, why do we want to keep seeing this? Why do we want to keep revisiting this? I think those are very like key questions he's asking, as opposed to just saying, oh, my first game was a hit. Now I should make another one because that'll be a hit too. It was, um, but I don't think that was his like primary motivation in his inspiration for it. Right. The very idea of a sequel is to take a thing with an ending and to create a new conflict that basically undercuts that. It's to, to create a sequel is to create suffering in a, it's for your entertainment. It's why Spider-Man can never end. Spider-Man is always going to have a bittersweet ending at best because he has to come back for the next issue or next movie or whatever. He can never be comfortable. And if we look at Metal Gear Solid 2 from that lens, there is not a single more tragic character that has ever been made uh, than Raiden, who was a character who was designed specifically to suffer because another thing had to be made. He suffers for it. Like, yeah, like Snake is also a person who like suffers as a result of more games being made. That's what a lot of what Metal Gear Solid 4 is. The fact that like this stuff will never end and I will age and get old before this stuff ends. It's bleak. And Raiden being a protagonist, like switching the protagonist of that is controversial, but it is definitely Raiden is representative of so much uh, you know, the expectation of a fantasy versus the reality of it how we can never compare to the original, both in the sequel sense and in like the, the legacy sense. There's so much loaded in that. And I think since, you know, like you said, the power fantasy of video games had never really gone interrogated to the extent that this game interrogates it. People didn't know how to process it because they just took it at the face value of like, why am I not him? Yeah, no, Solid Snake is like your like prototypical video game protagonist, especially once you're evolving out of like the Link and Mario era video games. Like how many like first person shooters or Call of Duty games or even characters like Nathan Drake, um, you can kind of see that DNA of Solid Snake in them. Um, you know, the kind of grizzled, dark haired, dark featured, handsome, low gruff voice, uh, smokes a cigarette. Solid Snake oozes gender. Um, it's even in his name, Solid Snake. It's like, you know, a boner, haha. Um, that's like something very core to who he is. And Raiden is like the shadow of that. He is, he lacks the substance. Um, I think it's a very key thing that the re-release of Metal Gear Solid 2 is called Metal Gear Solid 2 Substance. And those snake tails are where you can play as Solid Snake on the big shell. Um, you know, that's the actual substance versus the shadow that is Raiden who we play as. He's a white shadow. He is drained of color. He is drained of gender even. Um, you know, Raiden was initially conceptualized as a woman. And while I think Kojima landed on something profound 
with gender with Raiden. I think it was completely kind of accidental or happenstance because I think he said that he got a fan letter after the first one's like, I love your games, but would it be cool to play as not an old man? I think it was just some like, uh, you know, girl fan who really loved the first Metal Gear Solid game. He's like, huh, I should I should I should explore that. Um, so Raiden was originally conceived of as a female at first. Um, and then um, that kind of settled into this kind of like androgynous character. I think Yoji Shinkawa's art was a big motivating factor here. I think Kojima's mentioned Yoji has this very kind of wispy ephemeral style to his stuff. It's almost art without borders, kind of like, you know, military without borders, a military sans frontiers. Um, and you can see a lot of the Raiden, uh, what's it called, art design is very genderless. Like you can't even really tell that he's a man in a lot of that OG uh, Yoji uh, artwork. Um, so I think he took that idea very seriously. I think that's what makes this so compelling is that he is everything Solid Snake is not. So as you're going through essentially a Solid Snake quest line, um, you're doing the things that Solid Snake theoretically would be doing if you, he was the main character, but without all the things that made him Solid Snake, who are you? Who is Raiden? Who is the player? What is your relationship to him? These are all things that are being interrogated through just that. Your son looks like a girl! Right. Those Ingmar Bergman persona type themes of like, are you aspiring to be somebody else? And what is your identity if you are not yourself? Is admiration toxic? Is projection part of your personality? Like how much of how much of us is what we've absorbed and how much of us is just ourselves? Raiden interrogates a lot. A lot is interrogated through him. This is a game that whose narrative beats are intentionally replicating the original through another character. And also the protagonist from the previous game is there and handling it way better than you are. Uh, like the, the third act or the, the, the concluding climax that you lead to, like he basically gives you like a, a katana and is like, hey, fucking go nuts. I, I, I'm, I'm good. I don't need a katana. You're good though. You're, and it's cool that you get a katana, but it's just like this guy basically being here to make you stronger. And if he wasn't there, you wouldn't have that stuff is, I wouldn't say emasculating, but there is like an emasculating thing about being right and that the game is playing with so, so often. Oh, why do we have to play this lousy old game? Because it was the only one in the house. Come on, Homer, open the door for your mystery date. Ooh, captain of the football team. He's a dreamboat. Don't wait up, Marge. <laughs> okay, Bart, your turn, your turn. <laughs> you got the dud! <laughs> hey! A dud! Yeah, and I think it's really interesting. Uh, the game where you don't really control Solid Snake is perhaps Solid Snake's finest hour. So uh, one thing we talked about earlier was that Kojima is always interrogating the fact that his games has your character on a narrative linear track. Um, there is a start beginning or a start middle and end to the story of Solid Snake or Raiden or Big Boss or whatever it is in a game. And that's kind of built into a narrative video game. Um, you don't have the kind of that freedom of outcome or freedom of result. There's this line that Gray Fox says in Metal Gear Solid 1 where he says he doesn't want to be a tool of the government or anybody else, and that anybody else in universe can refer to the Patriots or, you know, Ocelot or whatever. Um, but I think metatextually that anyone else also applies to the player because, you know, you control Raiden, you control Solid Snake in Metal Gear Solid 1, you control Big Boss in Metal Gear Solid 3, you have control over that character. 
And uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 it unmoors the player from that character, where Solid Snake is no longer bound by your control over him. He is free of that control. And in those moments, he is at his highest. He is at his peak. Um, he is theoretically off screen fighting Fortune or fighting um, Olga, who is a ninja in the Big Shell portion of this game. And he's theoretically having these awesome battles. And eventually he wins them all over to his side. Um, so, like, this is really Solid Snake because in the first game, he is just put in, he's injected with box die, and he said, go, you know, infect everyone. Who cares if you live, die, win, lose? This is the path that's prescribed for you. Even Metal Gear Solid 4, when you pick up with him, everything Solid Snake does is kind of planned out by Eva and Ocelot um, and this kind of conspiracy that they reveal in a 75-minute cutscene at the end. Um, this is the only time in the narrative where Solid Snake isn't really bound by someone's actions. He's not following someone's prescribed path, whether that's in-universe or the player. It's just something that I can't believe someone actually did that. <laughs> like that, th that is such a ballsy move to make in a game, especially when he's like the one video game protagonist video game players wanted to play as the most at this place and time in you know the video game history. Right. Yeah. No. There's so much. the The fact that like the best time of this person's life is the only time. Like when you're not playing as him, he's liberated. Interesting. He gets to be, like you said, it's it's, it's his finest hour. The, the last minute you get to play as him, he's presumed dead. And then the second you play as somebody else, it's like, oh shit, he's in the elevator. He's alive. He's fine. You know, I think about the scene a lot when I revisited Metal Gear Solid 1. It, like, uh, there's a, just a point where um, you're told not to use your weapons. Somebody's like, it's okay. I like using the machine, so you can't select your weapon. And that whole thing is like explaining in universe why you can't equip your weapon in this moment. But it is very much like Snake's agency is being taken away from him at all times. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the other thing is like our agency is being taken away from us. And that's an extension of like if Snake and us are separate because Snake has his own personality and his own opinions and his own expressions and he's a developed character outside of us, but we are guiding him through that narrative, how we are responsible, we are controlling him and we're responsible for him. And then extrapolating that to the tanker section of this game, we're responsible for him and he dies technically. Mm -hmm. But like the second your control is taken away from him, it's like, no, I'm alive. I'm better than ever. At least that fucking guy is not in control of me. Anyway, good luck, Raiden. Bye. Damn, what a, what a fucking great framing device. People didn't get it. And it's also just a nice homage to, you know, stories like Hidden Fortress, um, which, and even like Star Wars, the original, which introduced you through, you know, C-3PO and R2-D2, and they almost become witnesses to um, the heroics of Luke Skywalker and Han Solo, because um, you spend more of the movie with those characters. Um, whereas Luke Skywalker is introduced, you know, 15, 20 minutes into the movie and Han Solo a little bit after that. Um, so it is kind of like also paying homage to, you know, some of his favorite movies, both Kurosawa and Lucas as well. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, there's the, there's the actual like interactive narrative, but then there's the, the story itself where Raiden is basically forced to experience what a version of what Snake had to experience at Shadow Moses. The president's been kidnapped, terrorists holding him for ransom. Here is a contained space where you have to carry out these tasks all the gimmicks vaguely similar to the previous guy revolver ocelots there metal gear it's repeating itself and again like it's interacting on the iterating on the idea of sequels going bigger repeating the same beats how much of this is allowed to grow and how much of this is being inflicted on somebody to suffer for your entertainment the, the way that this game's able to like get away with so much but also make it so new and refreshing by you know making it metatextual and making it more refined in the gameplay, it's, it's unbelievable. 
video games needed this. Video games really needed this. Before, like I th- another thing I'm appreciating about it when I revisited it was the fact that there's more now in this, like the, talking about the advancements this game made. Like ga- video games is like player character, objective, obstacle. And this game's using that space to not only, you know, walls and barriers and things attached to the walls are interactable in some way and not just to like limit you from as like physical barriers, but as opportunities such as I am able to shoot this fire extinguisher and that creates something that'll stun the enemy momentarily. And I'm not saying like, oh, before this, there weren't like exploding barrels in video games or anything like that, but making so much of the world interactable where like, hey, that's not just a, that's not just a JPEG of a bottle. That is an actual bottle that I can shoot in all the bottles I can shoot on here. And that's watermelon can be broken. The detail is like a big, part of Kojima's world but there's a reality that he's creating within that that it's like I don't know it, 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 yeah it's, it's yeah I think they're environment forward games environment and all the like enemy AIs are taken as seriously as solid snakes so they're all essentially bound by the same rules I know we talked about this with Metal Gear Solid 3 as well where you know the enemies can suffer all the same status ailments like they can be tranquilized they have a status stamina meter and a health bar just the same as snake um they're subject to the same you know food and animal bites and all that stuff they're subject to the same systems i think this is something i really loved about elden ring um because all the items and the equipment and armor are all things that any of your enemies could have right um there's Mm -hmm. nothing in the game that can't be equipped by your enemy as well so it really feels like everything that exists in the world is equally applicable to the player and the enemy AIs. What do you think you're doing, Snake? You don't have enough to keep you busy. Try to remember the mission if you can. I think the best tutorial mission of all time is maybe <laughs> the, the tanker section and how much it conveys to you. And like it stops you in your tracks a little bit, but not in the same way that even Metal Gear Solid 1 does. By it just There's so many like visual indicators instead of like, Snake! That is a shadow. Make sure the enemy doesn't see it. Instead, there's like a you. It shows you it like it. It really hammers it home. Where it's like you can see the enemy's shadow right there at the corner, can't you? Yeah. Oh, here's a room where a flashlight is shining, and you see the shadow of is that Vulcan Raven? No, it's just a toy. But isn't it interesting how the light interacts with the shadows here and could implicate you in some way? Raven. And that's the first example of like an optical illusion, which goes into like the the themes and all that, but. And just the idea of like, oh, interesting that if you hide in this corner over here, it's darker than this corner. And even though a character could see you and walk past you, they wouldn't actually see you visually because you're obscured. Same thing could apply. Somebody could be, come out from the dark. It's, it's teaching yeah. so much. You see the lighting mechanics. And a big part of the gameplay that evolved on Metal Gear Solid was the addition of first-person aiming, um, which was not available in the original Metal Gear Solid. So this allowed you to go into first person and aim your gun, you know, up at lights or at flower bags when you didn't have that kind of control. Um, And you can see even things like dragging in the water um, when you come in from outside on the deck of the tanker inside and you'll leave footprints that can be tracked in. If you stay out in the rain too much, um, you'll catch a cold, which will happen, which happened in my most recent playthrough. And that's not a mechanic that doesn't show up again until the very end of the game when Bryden is naked and running around. And he could catch a cold if you don't complete that part of the segment fast enough. I like the concept of the overture. Uh, An overture traditionally in like cinema is like an opening piece of music that usually plays over the opening credits, but it kind of foretells the entire story that's about to come, usually through the musical movement. The tanker scene is basically that 
relative to the rest of the game. It really introduces everything right there, um, like all the systems that'll be at play, all the things that can happen, all the environmental cues, and then the rest of the game is just kind of building on that. Right, yeah. Like verticality becomes so important now that you have that first person aiming available and you can see like, oh, I'm in this area that has like three floors and I can see the enemies walk and I can shoot them. Great. But this game's more than its mechanics. It's also its narrative. And we haven't really addressed the narrative too much. A big part of this game when people talk about it is its convoluted plot because it is doing a lot, not just in like reckoning with the relationship of Metal Gear Solid as a series and as a sequel. And like not even just like having a conversation about itself in like the video games that could learn from it, but it's also having a conversation with the real world. And we may have to acknowledge some specific plot beats to talk about this. You've we've talked about kernel AI, but we haven't talked about what kernel AI is. Let's let's touch on like the the way that this game like talks about the real world for a bit. Yeah. Um so um the first three, four Metal Gear Solid games, Kojima is very clear on what the theme of the game is. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 1 was gene um, in terms of genetics. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff about cloning and the human genome in there. Metal Gear Solid 2 is about meme, um, which is, you know, I had never really heard of the word meme uh, when I first played Metal Gear Solid 2. It's something that everyone knows now thanks to the internet. But uh, meme as more of like a cultural artifact or a unit of culture or information or data that is passed on, um, transformed, mutated, just like genes tend to be. But there are things not covered by genetic information. What do you mean? Human memories, ideas, culture, history. Genes don't contain any record of human history. Is it something that should not be passed on? Should that information be left at the mercy of nature? We've always kept records of our lives. Through words, pictures, symbols, from tablets to books. But not all the information was inherited by later generations. A small percentage of the whole was selected and processed, then passed on. Not unlike genes, really. That's what history is, Jack. Um, and that seems to be the organizing principle of this game, and it's specifically putting it in the context of the digital age, of Y2K, of the rise of AI and digital entertainment, and the military entertainment complex, and the recent revolution of military affairs, um, you know, coming off of Desert Storm and Desert Shield, and then moving into the Iraq War and the War on Terror. Um, these were things that were in Kojima's mind. Um, the original uh, treatment for Metal Gear Solid 2 was to be on an oil tanker, um, and it was going to be involved with the Iran-Iraq conflict going on at the time. Um, this was before 9-11 uh, happened. During the summer of 2000, there was thoughts that Iran and Iraq might get into a war. Um, and then Kojima kind of backed off. He's like, I don't want to be commentating on an actual war that's happening for various reasons. But you can still kind of see all those themes get sublimated into what Metal Gear Solid 2 is narrat narratively. Um, it's not a mistake that it ends on Wall Street and fighting on top of the federal building there. Um, and then the kernel AI is obviously a reflection of where technology is, where technology is going at the time. Um, I use Metal Gear Solid, you know, as my kind of marker for time and life. But I really think of Metal Gear Solid 1 in 1998 and Metal Gear Solid 1990 or Metal Gear Solid 4 in 2008 as like the beginning and end of the Wild West of the digital entertainment era. And during that Wild West, there were competing formats, competing hardware. Um, we had not all standardized on like Blu-ray and MP4 files. Like people were trying different stuff with media, with entertainment, especially digital entertainment. And you see Kojima doing that with his own games as well. 
So no one really had an idea where things would settle down in terms of what would be the winner in terms of format, hardware, um, form factor. I don't think anyone saw that, you know, cell phones would win out as the dominant, you know, kind of hardware of the age. That's what Metal Gear Solid 2 is trying to grasp with. Like, we have this behemoth, this beast of the internet, and we don't really know what to do with it. Um, We are now starting to accumulate data at a rate previously unheard of. We're able to store that data. It's available to everyone at all times, every day. What effect does that have on the human psyche? What effect does that have on human society? How do levers of power, how do institutions, how do they leverage that? How do they use that to push forward their own propaganda, their own agendas? Those are all just some of the ideas that are working through in this game. And I think the kernel AI is basically like, what if someone kind of maliciously or not maybe not even maliciously, you know, based on the future games, you could think that whoever designed the Patriots thought they were doing something altruistic or, you know, something that was for the good of society. Um, and that's like, how do you manage it? How do you present it to the masses? How do you filter it? But in the current digitized world, trivial information is accumulating every second, preserved in all its triteness, never fading, always accessible. Rumors about petty issues, misinterpretations, slander. All this junk data, preserved in an unfiltered state, growing at an alarming rate. It will only slow down social progress, reduce the rate of evolution. Ryden, you seem to think that our plan is one of censorship. Are you telling me it's not? You're being silly. What we propose to do is not to control content, but to create context. Create context? The digital society furthers human flaws and selectively rewards development of convenient half-truths. Just look at the strange juxtapositions of morality around you. Billions spent on new weapons in order to humanely murder other humans. Rights of criminals are given more respect than the privacy of their victims. Although there are people suffering in poverty, huge donations are made to protect endangered species. Everyone grows up being told the same thing. Be nice to other people. But beat out the competition. You're special. Believe in yourself and you will succeed. But it's obvious from the start that only a few can succeed. You exercise your right to freedom, and this is the result. All rhetoric to avoid conflict and protect each other from hurt. The untested truths spun by different interests continue to churn and accumulate in the sandbox of political correctness and value systems. Everyone withdraws into their own small gated community afraid of a larger forum. They stay inside their little ponds, leaking whatever truth suits them into the growing cesspool of society at large. The different cardinal truths neither clash nor mesh. No one is invalidated, but nobody is right. Not even natural selection can take place here. The world is being engulfed in truth. And this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. It's asking questions that I think we're still kind of grasping with now as we've kind of seen what the internet has become. And, um, you know, the internet's been great for a lot of things. It's how we become friends. It's how a lot of, Mm -hmm. like, liberation movements have been able to get some traction, show real images of what's happening going all the way back to say like the Arab Spring or even the Iraq war protests. But I don't know. It Those are just all things that it is working for. And then on top of that, it's also la- layering in a level of what it all means for games and gaming and the experience you're having. And that's why I think the kernel AI starts talking to you, the gamer, 
as opposed to talking to Raiden, the character, at a certain point. Right. Yeah. Very well said. The the game is throwing a lot in the air, and it's making a lot of like if then therefore like conclusions about a lot of things that ended up coming true. But I do think that you, I think the big thing here is technology, right? You know, we can talk about like the surface levels, like oh, predictive things, like just the nature of AI, which I mean, in Kirtle's case is like an artificial intelligence, but AI in our sense is like machine learning, when you know whatever. But like, you know, the the, the ideas of like the the internet and our relationship with it, whereas like it was when this game came out and like the internet was already such like a existential concern of like this tool is neutral in its creation and its intention is altruistic in uh, origin, but it's capability in terms of like completely ruining and changing the world it's on it's it's inconceivable and it becomes like you know the patriots are like an unseen power and i do feel like the lolly lule low whatever you want to call them (laughs) this unseen power that we just know is more than us it's abstraction is how it's able to do so much and it's also it's covert and it's, you know, like these things that are neutral at their face are able to be sublimated or changed in such a way that it's um, hostile to us simply because like the bigger guy, the stronger people are organized in a way that like something free range like the internet can eventually be weaponized into. And we've seen, we talk about this all the time, you especially, Manu, I know how you feel about, you know, as a coder and also just like as a person that uses the internet, how much worse it has gotten as venture capital is taken over and advertising everything in our lives and our everyday lives is advertising now and like you can't scroll more than five seconds without seeing an advertisement anything that isn't sponsored content is actively an advertisement advertisements for advertisements just like a hostile way of something that was simpler back then and not in like a return way but just in like a the internet became like an escape and now it is a recreation of these existential malaise that has dominated everything else right yeah yeah I was going to say, actually, that's the best example of what I was talking about of digital media and the internet being the Wild West 20 years ago. Web pages were varied and different and would have all sorts of weird, usually badly formatted stuff. Um, but, you know, no two web pages look the same. Now, you go to any web page, whether it's like Kotaku or Fandom or CNN or IGN or ESPN, they all functionally work the same. They are littered with ads all over. You scroll, you have to scroll past a very generic introduction to an article just so you can scroll past three ads first, and then they get into the detail of what you're actually looking for. It's all been streamlined, commodified, turned into an assembly line production where it doesn't really feel like there's anything really being created. It feels like it's being generated. That might be kind of the fundamental tension that exists in Metal Gear Solid 2. Solid Snake is creating a path for himself while Raiden has a path generated for him. And it's kind of the fundamental conflict that arises from kind of trying to reconcile both of those things in the context of the broader narrative of the story. For sure. Yeah. Like going back to the Wild West example or just like the content of everything, like making standardizations for making websites, you know, like on one hand, like, oh, now it's accessible to everybody. And on the other hand, now this can be used to make everything look this and make everything generic and make everything indistinct. And make every, and they're not trying to like go on a libertarian screed about like if you, you had a code and you had to make your own web page and that's what made everything unique and everybody was learning it live and that made it better. Not necessarily. It's just like the tools that were sold to help people have been used to oppress them later. The other thing is like 
who is materially benefiting from all this glut? Because like, as an example of just like podcast players, right? You open up, even a company as evil as Apple is not going to subject you to additional ads besides whatever you get in the podcast itself. But if you open up like Player FM or CastBox, my podcast has like visual ads that are covering it up and making it harder for me to access a podcast. Even if I open up and listen to my own podcast, I'm not getting any money out of those ads mm-hmm. that are playing 30 seconds before my thing. Or, you know, these outside forces coming in and like making Spotify more than a music listening app. And now it's like, here's a generative AI DJ that is curating a playlist for you based off of your listening activity or just that. And yeah, it's like, it's oversaturation. Everything has to be selling you something at all points at any time. And it's just ways for, I don't know, but that's, that's speaking of technology as like this general thing, right? Something that I found very interesting about Kojima is his love of the Sony Walkman and his belief that it is one of the greatest technology, <laughs> like the greatest piece of technology that was ever invented because it made something that you mainly experience at home a portable with you on the go. And it's music, it's art, it is the purest art that there is. And it is something that you personalize to an extent. You take your tapes with you, you can make mixtapes, you can play your own music. You're bringing something that you love with you everywhere you go, even if it's just for yourself. And I think that Kojima's relationship with technology is so interesting because he sees the beauty and simplicity and he also sees the horror of something, right? And I'm not making assumptions, but this is just an observation, right? He has his finger on the pulse for America a lot, both because he absorbs a lot of American culture, but also because he, as a Japanese person, is a victim of the, the horrors of American technology. I think the reason his work is so prescient isn't because, oh, he's a great genius who was able to predict the course of the world. No, he's just had... <laughs> As, as a man who was from a country that was a victim of the atom bomb, is existentially aware of the potential horrors of the American government and can see the beauty that they make in the art that he enjoys and also the horrors that has been inflicted on him and his culture directly. So like, yeah, he's like, yeah, Sonny Walkman, beautiful. Internet, beautiful. Also horrifyingly scary. And we have to ask a lot of questions about this kind of stuff. Yeah, ultimately, those kind of things become subject to the people who wield them, the people who have ownership over them, and how they deploy them. Um, And I think he understands the internet can be something that's incredibly powerful. um, But then he also understands it's something that actual powerful people are going to manipulate and use for their own ends. And I think, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we can broach real world subjects here for a minute here, right? Like you're talking about like the, the, the power of the internet and also the fear of it, because to draw a recent parallel, right? the the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I'm going to put it all out there right now. Free Palestine. Mm-hmm. We see how propaganda has changed in the digital age where media that we consumed was like, you know, again, who wields the power? Whoever is distributing that information to us is in control of the narrative, ultimately, unless you bear witness to it. And it was much harder to counter it with evidence. Thinking about how the first mission of this game is you taking pictures of a, an American weapon and saying, like, we're going to expose it to the world and thinking about how that would not do anything now just because of how, like, the internet intentionally buries shit uh, just with more shit to throw at, which this game directly interacts with as an idea. But, like, with the Israel-Palestine conflict, we are now seeing the, the horrifying truth of a reality every second of every day. And the counter-programming to that is, like, misconstrued propaganda and literal AI renderings of made-up atrocities from the more powerful Israeli government in this situation to see the horrifying truth and a manufactured fakeness being used by the same exact tool is 
something that this game is addressing 20 years before, but it is also like, this has been the truth forever. Like you said, Arab Spring, the Iraq War, Occupy Wall Street, et cetera. But it continues to be the truth when the internet is being used by more people than ever. Yeah, no, uh, for the second time during this conflict, Israel released a clearly doctored audio of supposedly a Hamas you know, person talking to someone in Gaza and saying, oh yeah, we have weapons and ambulances, whatever. Obviously a lie, but amidst all the kernel AI stuff in this game, it's also Rosemary talking to you as the AI. Uh, like there's an AI Rosemary involved in the ending of this game. Like not the real Rosemary talking to Jack that exists through maybe the first two thirds of the big shell portion of this uh, story, but actually like the AI switches between the kernel and um, Rose, especially during the long monologue at the end before you fight Solidus that everyone loves to quote the whole one about all this data accumulating in all its triteness and people living in their own personal information silos, all the stuff that people uh, note are prescient about this game that are explicitly said. Um, they're kind of delivered as like a two-hander between Kernel AI and Rose AI. So you already see that they're doctoring, like kind of creating a fake experience or fake audio, essentially, through that uh, through those codec calls. It's It's kind of scary, honestly. I didn't even think about that. And you know, thinking about how this game was very much based on oil conflicts in the Middle East. That's what the Iran-Iraq treatment was originally about. But that's where British interests and now American interests in the region still are. That's part of why Israel as a state was backed by both of those powers was uh, petroleum and access to oil um, that motivates so much of our policy. And I think the petrodollar is very specifically um, a very important kind of sublimated theme into this game. You don't have a long codec call about petrodollars per se, like you do other kind of historical topics. But the big shell, it's a giant, it's essentially an oil refinery. It's kind of modernized and stuff like that. But I think it's very clear. It's an oil tanker that sank that's supposedly carrying Metal Gear Ray. It's all sorts of stuff that are kind of subliminally hinting at the oil industry is what is driving this, even though they don't specifically mention it. And that goes back even to Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, where part of the plot in there is them developing a new biofuel and that is part of the cover for developing uh whatever metal gear model was in that game i think metal gear d but regardless it's like it's very tied to oil driving american profits and this is like the american game of the metal gear series it is set in america fully there is no american flags but there are things that are like the american flag like the sons of liberty flag in there most of the characters are american military one way or another um, I think Vamp is really like the biggest person who isn't from the crew. Vamp is a member of Dead Cell. Born in Romania, his specialty is knives. But I guess you know that by now. When he was just a kid, he lost his family to a terrorist bomb that went off in a church they were attending. His body pierced by a crucifix, Vamp was buried under the rubble for two days before he was finally rescued. During those two days, he survived by feeding on the blood of his family to quench his thirst. That was how he acquired a taste for blood. So that's why they call him Vamp. No, Vamp isn't for vampire. It's because he's bisexual. Um, so it is very much um, a game about America, about what it runs on, which is sadly not Duncan, but petroleum. <laughs> it's really hard to grasp, but I think it's very central to what is kind of the politics informing the game is that um, on top of all the things about what is real, what is fake, because um, that's a question Raiden has to ask himself throughout the game, especially when, you know, the AI starts going haywire at the end. Right. 
so let's let's talk about like the reality and the fakeness of something for a second here. Like uh, when that when you realize that like the kernel that you're talking to is an AI and Rose may or may not be an AI and you begin to doubt your reality again, that is being like we relate to this in terms of like the misinformation age. People talk about how prescient this game is in terms of like the buzzwords that we now use in the Trump and post-Trump era world, misinformation, fake news, etc., in all their triteness, etc., with the, that monologue. But it had an actual material impact on my playthrough. When I first played this game the first time last year, uh, I was doing a no-kill playthrough. I was doing my best to not kill anybody, even that really annoying part in the tanker section where mm. they just keep lobbing grenades at you and you can't move forward. And I was like, oh, I want to kill this guy so bad, but it's not a good thing to kill people. And then when Snake hands you a katana, I'm like, and then like you, you see like your environment, like, like there's like a lot of like glowing floors and things that feel more digital than analog that you've been used to in your playthrough. I'm like, oh, none of these people are real. Mm-hmm. I could just kill these people. This is just like my VR missions. <laughs> and I started killing people in the game without regard because like it was like, there's like, I'm being warned by people. Clearly, I'm allowed to kill these people because it would be impossible for me to do a, a, a run where I could just stun all these people. And it turns out they were all real because I got the kill count at the end of the mm-hmm. game. The game tricked me. Yeah, <laughs> um, I think that's actually maybe something also we're just worth highlighting is I think or I know this is the first game in the Metal Gear Solid series that really introduced non-lethal play. And that would almost become a defining aspect or kind of the default way these games kind of are played going forward is that it really makes you think about your kills. You know, Metal Gear Solid 1 does this, you know, it starts interrogating you know, that's why Liquid Snake has this big monologue at the end is like you enjoy killing Snake um, and like telling him and this kind of confronting you with your violence that you played through, you know, through that game at that point. Um, and then now these games start giving you the option. If you don't want to kill someone, that becomes an option. And I feel like this is kind of like the beginning or the birthplace of pacifist play really in games or even to the point where, you know, now Assassin's Creed have like features where you can just explore the historical worlds like without any combat or anything. I think a lot of the idea that, oh, you don't need to kill something to play this game, um, really, like, that kind of takes seed here. It's weird how much this game introduces and stuff that becomes a lot simpler than this, in the sense of, like, now the passive playthrough is a staple of the series. I thought, you know, when I was introduced to Metal Gear Solid 1 for the first time that it was possible, but by the time you get to that scene where you, like, Meryl breaks you out of prison, you realize you literally have to kill people to progress. That's a later uh, game thing. This game's so good. Raiden, turn the game console off right now. What did you say? The mission is a failure. Cut the power right now. What's wrong with you? Don't worry. It's a game. It's a game just like usual. You'll ruin your eyes playing so close to the TV. What are you talking about? Raiden, something happened to me last Thursday when I was driving home. I had a couple of miles to go. I looked up and saw a glowing orange object in the sky to the east. It was moving very irregularly. Suddenly, there was intense light all around me, and when I came to, I was home. What do you think happened to me? Huh? Fine. Forget it. This game takes a lot of big swings. Some of the biggest any video game franchise has ever made. It's narratively ambitious as it is mechanically. Do you feel like it falls short for you in any way, or is there something that you feel like it could have done better? I mean, there are parts of the game that aren't the most enjoyable to play um, or just kind of feel like whatever. Um, I'd say sometimes diffusing the C4 with the antifreeze or whatever. Um, I think the Peter Stillman, Peter Stillman is a very interesting aspect of this game. 
um, because Peter Stillman is a character that is ripped from a, a novel called City of Glass, which is part of Paul Astor's New York trilogy. Kojima has said this was a very, very specific influence on the game. And it's kind of set up as like a mystery initially as the first two acts of the story. Um, there's this guy, his name is Peter Stillman, and he's acting weird. And then the main character, the detective, um, kind of is trying to investigate, figure out what's wrong with this guy. And then in the third act, the story just goes completely confused in a way very similar to Metal Gear Solid 2. And the protagonist starts thinking he's Peter Stillman. Um, it's really weird. And the only thing Kojima really like directly pulled was the name. Um, but we get so much about Peter Stillman, his backstory about his failures, his relationship with Batman, um, which kind of seems weird when you don't really understand both the influence and then later on what kind of Metal Gear Solid 2 is doing overall. It just seems like it's a bunch of, what, why are we doing this? Um, yeah, like, that's two hours of the game. Why are we doing this? <laughs> yes. It feels like the stuff that someone who like talks about movies in terms of like time management don't say, oh, I would cut this segment of the game just because it doesn't serve a purpose. Um, mm -hmm. But I think it's almost like it's almost like kind of foreshadowing that not all of this game has a purpose <laughs> per se, or at least it's weird because you can almost like defend this game in ways that sound like it's a bad game. It's like, oh, it, the whole point is that this segment is kind of boring or a retread or that goes on forever um, without any kind of real payoff or anything like that. Um, but I think it is all part of kind of trying to kind of test the boundaries of the video game experience a little bit or test the boundaries of a narrative experience perhaps in terms of like i don't know i don't want to say coherence because that's definitely veering into uh it kind of sucks um mm -hmm. but it, i think it is really trying to test the limits of what a reader or reader uh the, the gamer is capable of trying to take in and try to synthesize in the midst of all these other things going on in the story and in the game no, I mean, that's a fair thing. Like, I think you, it, it is definitely stretching the elastics of what video games are capable of. And it's definitely going to like bounce around a little bit as a result. Like this game chooses to fall on a few things, much like how President uh, Solid as Snake has fallen on <laughs> things himself. Yeah, I would agree that like the, the weak, the, the most um, frustrating segment of the game is definitely like diffusing Fat Man's um, bombs. And mainly just because of how the clunky it is to like just spray... Mm -hmm. uh, things with the thing like I don't think like it's unfair I think it's clever in how he hides things actually it's just like actually managing and dealing with it with the uh, relatively new idea of first person controls in an otherwise non first person game is definitely a growing pain uh, it'd be it, that's the kind of thing where it's like oh let's do Metal Gear Solid 2 in the Metal Gear Solid 3 engine it's just kind of like well this game's just fucking easy <laughs> yeah and you know some of that like they, they like put a lampshade over it because as like oh here's a C4 hidden behind a mirror and meanwhile, Peter Stillman calls you is like, no, no, the placement is all wrong. These are too obvious. You're finding them too easily and they're not at good blast points. So they're even kind of like pointing out that this isn't like the most challenging, uh, you know, puzzle or, you know, segment of the game either. Yeah, I was reading about the, the City of Glass influence on this game and it's like a leftover thing, leaving Peter Stillman in there because when Kojima originally conceived of the game, he was a lot more overt with it. And all the characters in the game had characters names from City of Glass. And I think this is like a way of him to like, I don't know if it's a leftover so much as it's just like, well, I want to make sure the intention of why I'm doing this is in the, represented in the game somehow. So I think Peter Stillman is, you know, a representation of that. Definitely a clue for the person in 2001 who had played both Metal Gear Solid 2 on the PlayStation 2 and read uh, City of Glass, <laughs> which it currently includes <laughs> Trevor from <laughs> the, <laughs> No Cartridge. 
definitely a tell, but it is definitely an interesting ball. Do you have anything else where you feel like you're fighting with the game a little bit when critiquing it? Um, I think just mechanically, um, I had trouble with some of the katana portion of the game. I just don't think it was like fully baked. Um, I think it was just something like, oh, cool, you get to finally use the ninja sword. Um, some of it might be my frustrations with trying to get through non-lethal playthroughs um, because you can technically turn your katana into non-lethal mode, which you're theoretically hitting them with the less sharp side of the sword. God damn it. <laughs> but even if you use the like the piercing like blow where you press down on the right analog stick and it does like a thrusting jab, um, that is lethal regardless of what mode you have your sword in. Um, so I think that is something that I feel like could have been better, better handle control. And to be clear, I'm critiquing this in like 2021, 2022, 2023, because um, I had trouble with it on the playthrough. It's possible back in 2001, I didn't quite have that issues because I didn't remember hating it that much back then. But it's definitely something I struggled with with playing on the HD collection. And um, I haven't got to it yet on the MGS collection, but um, it is something that it's just like this part is just it's super cool. I'm glad they give you the sword. And it obviously sets up a lot with Raiden going into MGS4 and especially Revengeance, which I think is a really underrated game overall. Um, but I just feel like that segment could be just maybe a little more baked mechanically. I understand that for sure. Uh, but definitely becomes a part of his character moving forward in the series. And it's very interesting to see how um, in the future entries of the game, like the suffering of uh, Raiden perpetuates forward, both in like ways that are humiliating. Uh, like uh, we talked about this in Metal Gear Solid 3 as like a weak point of that game. It's like weird pot shots at Raiden for, for no reason. But in 4 in Revengeance, which takes a more like measured approach of like the toll of uh, perpetual war takes on a character who isn't as uh, strong as Snake and feels a lot more and is trying to mm -hmm. feel less and has emotional connections that are a lot more personal than Snake has who, where all of his personal connections are people he met through war, especially since like, you, you know, with the reveal of uh, Bryden having a more tragic and awful backstory than any character ever, uh, having been like a child soldier who is maladjusted and socially not there and the game interrogates that the 80s a civil war you were one of the best among the child soldiers that fought in that conflict when you were barely 10 years old you became the platoon leader of the small boy unit at the time your outstanding kill record earned you several nicknames including white devil and jack the ripper jack I was your godfather. I named you. When the war ended, you disappeared from the relief center. I wondered what happened to you. I should have known they would recruit you. And, you know, you talked about this on Podcast Sans Frontier, so I'm not going to, like, talk about the whole thing, but the backlash to Raiden is such a, you know, it is, it's, it's not a test, right? But it is such, like, an interesting, like, check of, like, is this is this medium ready for something like this? This medium is visually refined, but is it ready to be challenged and like having their reality questioned? And by making Raiden, like you said, more ambiguous in appearance and gender, his masculinity be questioned repeatedly. The president of the United States, you know, bondles mm -hmm. him as like a what are you sort of thing, which gross. Um, or um, him being naked and having to cover his crotch and again, just the ways this game humiliates and uh, degrades him throughout. It's just like, 
again, this is all like surface level stuff that is like, then while the game is also communicating to you, Raiden is messed up psychologically. Horrible things have happened to this man. He isn't a loser. He is a victim and he's also stronger in a lot of ways. And it's also like going through some of the worst shit that a person can go through. And But if you're just hung up on like the fact that you're not Snake and also you were girlier than him and not as masculine and you're not my power fantasy, it, it's definitely like asking the medium a question of like, are you prepared? Are you prepared to not be the strongest thing around you? Mm-hmm. Are you prepared to have like your perceptions of your reality? Like that are you able to see the world past its surface if you interact with a fake thing this way how are you going to activate uh, interact with the reality of of the situation it's 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 interesting yeah there's there's a lot going on at one level raiden is almost holding up a mirror to the gamer um, my guess is the gap between the gamer playing this game and solid snake is similar to the gap between raiden and solid snake um, i think we're more likely to be like jack than we are to be like uh, snake this game is like constantly questioning your reality or like showing you the artifice of things in very interesting ways that, you know, contribute to that doubting your reality. Like I said, number one, I didn't know you could non-lethally hit people with a katana. That's not my relationship with swords. Two, uh, you know, me thinking that, oh, they're on, these people aren't real. I can kill them now. That's, that's one thing. But uh, the artifice of like, this person looks soft and dainty and weak, but has actually been gone through more than anyone who ever has. Or the image of the refinery. I mean, you can see it as like a microcosm of liberalism where it's like a thing that was used to destroy has been rebranded in a way that seems less harmful. But by the way, if this thing blows up, it'll destroy the Hudson Bay and will poison all of New York. Just like things like that. Like this is the most dangerous thing. It destroys the world. And we say it's cleaning the world now, but that is not the case. It is still very much a weapon and it can be devastating. Reality and truth versus like the image of something and how that plays with that. Yeah, no, it's funny. Uh, there's actually a very uh, iconic Solidus line, or I think it's the Colonel AI saying about how we're engulfed in truth, um, where there's almost too much truth out there. And I think there is something to Raiden going back to kind of the gamer analogy or how Raiden is like a reflection of the person playing. Right, I, I don't think the average gamer was a child soldier in Liberia during the 90s, but I think what there is a certain point where it highlights that Raiden is specifically prone to like falling susceptible to the kernel AI or being molded into what society wants him to be through the, you know, S3 program because he's someone who's had a shitty life and he just kind of wants to close it off and look forward and like kind of like not be the person he was or not be the sum of the things that he was before. Um, And like he's just kind of like ready to be taken by a system like the one the patriots have or a society that they have um and i think that's something that you know we've seen a very right-wing extremist swing in the gamer community in the last decade and a half and i think a lot of that is because we're all a little more isolated and we feel like our lives are shit and for most people it is and that makes you more susceptible to being engulfed in truth quote unquote in terms of being taken in by these like AI models and all this information and data silos um, that exist around us now. And that is a way that people are susceptible to that is kind of not having a place in the world before. Um, and then there, you know, people can take advantage of that or other institutional forces can. For sure. I mean, and on a personal level, fascism is one's ability to be oppressed if it gives you an illusion of power. To use the most famous example, Nazis being the way that Nazism rose in uh, Nazi Germany was because it's like, hey, listen, they did it. 
you're allowed to hurt those people. And in exchange, we control you, your lives, everything else mm-hmm. about your society, everything like that. And like, that's how the military industrial complex has basically worked. Hey, buddy, your life fucking sucks, doesn't it? We don't know who did that. Don't ask us. Totally wasn't us, by the way. But hey, uh, if you join the army, we'll give you a free car and you can blow shit up in a country that we like less. So isn't that great? Israel is also like a sort of like version of fascism where like the people who live there are fully militarized and are forced to serve in a military. And, you know, in exchange, you get to inflict violence on the people who used to live here for last, you know, forever generations. It's just like that. And like, it's interesting that Kojima gets to the point where it's like video games can be a tool of fascism in an interactive sense, right? It's a power fantasy. You're given the illusion of power, but in Raiden's case, again, he is subjugating himself. He's suffering. He's hurting himself. He is being controlled. His, your control comes at the cost of him. And it's also like video games is a radicalizing tool where it promotes violence in certain contexts. And Metal Gear is a very decisively like it's a game that very much is moving away from promoting violence as it evolves and rewards nonviolence and makes it an active part of its systems later on. It's very much, very much the game where Kojima realizes the potential corrupting power of number one, the interactive medium, and two, people's general susceptibility to willingly accept fascism in their personal lives and in their society. And he's realizing a lot of that through Raiden. It's all a show. Democracy is just a filler for textbooks. Think about it. Do you actually believe that public opinion influences the government? No. Yeah. And I think, you know, maybe the solve to that or the counter to that, I'm not disagreeing with you, but kind of like the balance in the narrative is Solid Snake, who I think as much as he's like the awesome action hero that I say is at the peak of his power, the reason I think this is Solid Snake at the peak of his power is that he turns into almost a philosopher king in the end of this game. Um, And, you know, part of that is functional. When he is the player that you play as, Solid Snake can't hold all the information and answers because you are the player and the things are happening to Solid Snake and you have to adjust information on the fly. But since he gets to be an NPC, essentially, he can have all the wit and wisdom that would normally be reserved for other characters. He's the one telling Raiden that, you know, Listen, don't obsess over words so much. Find the meaning behind the words, then decide. You can find your own name and your own future. You know, he says, part of fighting for the future is keeping the past alive. And I don't think that's like an appeal to traditionalism or a return kind of mindset. I think that's uh, we have to remember our history so that we can move forward. And I think that's something very relevant to modern times where people think that history started with the fall of the Soviet Union or on October 7th when Hamas attacked uh, Israel. Like, they don't see this as things that go back spanning, you know, generations and millennia, really. Um, and then he's also there telling Raiden that, yeah, you were part of a mistake. You were part of this S3 plan. You were part of this war in Liberia. But you can stop being part of the mistake at any point, And you can start fighting for something you believe in. And Raiden's like, what? Well, and Snake's just like, you have to figure that out for yourself, whatever that is, whether it's joining the war on cars or, you know, <laughs> fighting against imperialism. But that's those are the choices you have to make. And that's why I'm really kind of like moved by Solid Snake and at the back half of this game is because he becomes like, even though the game doesn't give you answers, Solid Snake gives you the tools to find hope. And that in and of itself is almost the most powerful thing about this game. I know you didn't have much in terms of choices this time. 
but everything you felt, thought about during this mission is yours. And what you decide to do with them is your choice. You mean start over? Yeah, a clean slate, a new name, new memories. Hmm. Choose your own legacy. It's for you to decide. It's up to you. I'm going to do my one circle back to A Song of Ice and Fire here. Something that happens in the books that was not depicted in the show. Um, it's where Brienne of Tarth, who was played by Gwendolyn Christie, comes across a group of kids living out of it in its war-torn Westeros. So like all the adults are dead or hung or whatever. All of a sudden, this little like village is attacked by like seven bandits. And bandits we know are like bad, bad people. Um, and it's just like, it's just me versus these fucker, you know, me versus these seven people. And I'm probably going to die, but these kids need defending. And she thinks to herself, I have no chance, but I have no choice either. I have to fight. It's like those existential wins. Um, whereas even if like the outcome isn't great, you, you chose, you chose wisely um, in the parlance of Indiana Jones. I think of Solid Snake at the end of this game. Uh, when Liquid Ocelot takes over Ocelot near the end and he absconds with Metal Gear Ray and dives into the Hudson Bay and Solid Snake like rips apart his handcuffs and does a swan dive chasing after Metal Gear Ray. Like, what the fuck are you doing, Solid Snake? <laughs> what, are, what the fuck are you going to do to Liquid Ocelot and Metal Gear Ray? But he knows that's the fight he has to fight. That's where I kind of find hope in this game because it is supposed to be a bleak and confused ending that the powers that be are so powerful so ingrained into life that they don't even have physical manifestation they are just the very law this country runs by as the ai says but it's the choices that we make that can be the victories that's why the end is not solid snake saying hey raiden come join me and let's go find who the patriots really are it's about hey raiden go talk to rose become a real boy um this game has strong pinocchio vibes as well it is literally a, a not real person a not real boy named jack who goes into the belly of the beast of Arsenal gear and what comes out is a real person in the end. Those are the moments of beauty in this game that I think kind of get lost because you want to talk about everything else. You want to talk about the ride and switch. You want to talk about the kernel AI. You want to talk about how confused it is. You want to talk about how the Patriots are dead for a hundred years and may not even be real. They're a computer program, all these things. And then you forget like the real heart of the story is in Solid Snake choosing to be Solid Snake. It is in Jack choosing to be Jack. And I think those are kind of ways to affirm yourself or find some kind of footing in this kind of swamp that is the digital age. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the whole, like, I mean, like another Pinocchio connection is like the lies that are being told to you and also like the rise that Ly Raiden chooses to tell himself mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. like they're not constructive or they're limiting to him even. Obfuscation and confusion are definitely the tools through which the powers that be are able to confuse and manipulate us all the time. I mean, like if you think about this game's uh, final boss, if you can call him the villain, Solidus Snake is also a victim of a lot of helplessness in, on his perception, at least. And his arc is him trying to reclaim his narrative, but he's only able to conceptualize that in a destructive manner because that is like how he sees everybody else realize, you know, realize the means to their end. His version of that is destructive. And obviously, Rydens has to have the takeaway of like, there's a way of doing this without like fucking 9 11, too, buddy. Both of these people are sort of carrying out like the will that of the, the Patriots wanted them to do, but they're not fully aware of that because they are thinking that they're fighting it against themselves. And again, it's that obfuscation that is so 
like again like it's confusing to us on a narrative level but also i think on a primal level we understand the idea of like so many things are being told to us that like our whole reality is unshakable so like the thing that just gives us the most catharsis in the moment feels like the most right even if it is like a conclusion that was that we were guided to because hey the fbi is telling you to go do that buddy yeah no it's almost a little bit like um the inception thing like Solidus needs to think that that's his idea to rise as the next big boss and challenge the Patriots. He doesn't realize that's part of a bigger plan by the Patriots to see if they're little, oh, can we turn this little, you know, wiener boy into a solid snake and take down uh, a big boss analog? Um, Do we have the capability of doing that now with our information control and genetic control and all that stuff? But they need Solid or Solidus to think that he's being a rebel against it own, that he is now operating outside of the system even though the S3 plan, the societal for selective sanity, that has prescribed the path for Solidus, but he has to believe that he is actually acting on his own and not part of the path prescribed to him by the Patriots. Right. And like, obviously, like the game, like having to like, well, we have to have a positive ending because again, you as the player are also guiding your player character Mm -hmm. through the prescriptive path. And it's interesting that like once the control is taken away from Raiden, that Snake is able to impart that like, you got to take control of your own (laughs) destiny. You know, go blow up a Toyota Corolla or whatever. <laughs> um, go kiss your wife and go blow up a car. That kind of stuff. Yeah, and like it's strange, but it's also reaffirming because canonically, or at least in like the Kojima things, this is the last time you play as Raiden. Now, Revengeance mm-hmm. throws this whole like thing out of the window. And then my, my whole point is shit. But again, as miserable as uh, Raiden is at the beginning of 4, and as much as his humanity as he's destroyed himself, in service of trying to be more like, in his perception, a hero like Snake, he's still ultimately able to reconcile with his wife and child at the very end of the game. Now, however, another game came out that, that, could, that contradicts this a little bit. But within the, within the plan narrative, there, there, there is a point to this. <laughs> I, I do think it is really, really worth thinking about Metal Gear Solid's 1, 2, and 3 as a very specific narrative um, that Kojima had. Um, three games... Three essentially distinct protagonists. You can define distinct a little loosely there, and you do play a solid snake briefly in Metal Gear Solid 2. But it's three characters, and at the end of all three games, there is a big cloud of confusion hanging over our characters. In Metal Gear Solid 1, Solid Snake doesn't know if he's going to live or die from the Fox Die virus. And all Naomi can tell him is just go out there and live, whether it's for another day or for another 30 years, just live. Like, no certainty whatsoever. Metal Gear Solid 2, it's just like, we talked about it. What the fuck just happened? What is this game trying to tell us? Did we win? Did we lose? Do we know? No idea. And then Metal Gear Solid 3 ends with Big Boss learning that the entire like harrowing mission that he was just on, where he had to murder the only person that mattered to him the most, was essentially a fabrication to smooth over Soviet-Anglo relations. It was all kind of fabricated, and it made him question everything about him. And I think all three of those... Thi- Three of those endings are very coherent. And, you know, those are things Kojima kind of really wanted to, like, make clear is because I think Metal Gear Solid 4 is gets a little bit into explaining the lore uh, a little bit too much. Um, mm-hmm. I think Metal Gear Solid 3 is I'm going to give you three distinct stories within this broader saga. And it's almost up to the gamer to come up with the rest of the canon. What happens in between? What turns Big Boss from the end of Metal Gear Solid 3? into the guy that's hanging over the stories of Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2, and also those MSX games, of course. 
But um, I think it's very useful to think of the first three games coherently as a trilogy, as incoherent as they may seem because of the disparate time, settings, and characters. But I think they functionally work best as a unit. Sure. And, you know, if you want to look at this as like a, as a, as an allegory, right? I mean, like you talk a lot of Metal Gear Solid 3 about like how it's like the Garden of Eden and the introduction of Metal Gears into this world is the original sin, the corruptibility of the world, basically the inciting incident of the most straightforward narrative in the game and how it moves on to the modern age and further complicates itself. And we see the tor- turmoil that it causes Snake in Metal Gear Solid 1. He finds a peace with it. And then two, it's like, all right, let's confuse you even more with this digital age and this new information age where it's impossible to forge your own identity because everything is like consumption. Everything is consumption. Everything is being sent to you. Everything is used to control or manipulate or guide you, whether it is an advertisement, whether it is like the FBI telling you to go buy a gun and kill people or whatever. It's just, it's a corrupting force and you have to find your own sense of light. And it's just like, find purpose in what you do make sure that what you do has a purpose and you're not just consuming or if you are do it with like the consideration of like you are a person and not just a vessel for consumption otherwise you become whatever fucking right it is and i think uh uh, leaning on that religious um, angle as well i think the tower of babel is a very important theme uh in this game or a very like kind of important reference point um because this game is about data which is in in a way a language um, it is a theme that he's going to iterate upon again in Metal Gear Solid Five. Um, but I think there's a lot here about the because the original story of the Tower of Babel, and I'm no Christian in any sense of the word, but it, it was essentially trying to build a tower to heaven. And um, there's kind of like a metaphorical aspect where it's kind of almost like building one language towards everyone speaks, but then the tower collapses, blows apart. I don't really know, but that's kind of the origin of the many different languages because people were blown apart and whatever. And I think that's an idea that Kojima is playing with a lot. He has Ghost Babel, I think, gets its name very specifically from this. Um, and I think, God, I had something else to go there, but I just completely brain farted. But yeah, talking I think about Babel, yeah. yeah, I'm babbling on. There we go. <laughs> but I think part of the confusion aspect um, and the miscommunication, the misinformation, a lot of that does uh, harken back to a Tower of Babel theme. So you see a very biblical like strain running through Kojima, though I, I don't pretty sure he's not Christian. Um, but you see that how that's influenced his work and especially Metal Gear Solid 3 with the Garden of Eden stuff. For sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's mentioned that this game's co-writer is the person who did write Ghost Babel. So there, there, there's that connection as well. Man, I'm wrapping up this discussion and I mentioned Revolver Ocelot exactly once. I can't believe I did that. It needs to be said. <laughs> Just one thing. Best character ever. He fucks everything up. He, he is stupid as fuck. He's my favorite character because he's the dumbest character and the smartest character at the same time. I don't think that Metal Gear Solid's confusing necessarily. Obviously, this game is heavy, but I think it is readable. I think if you try and understand Revolver Ocelot at any point, any point in the game, and in the games is what makes these games confusing to people. Just want to put that out there. Yeah, we you, we can do another three hours on Ocelot himself, and I think that's one of the fun parts because he almost you don't really realize his importance until probably late into the first Metal Gear Solid game. Like he's like your first boss fight. Um, he just seems like a guy. Him and Liquid seem to get along, but then you see how involved he is with the end game of that. He is the post-credit stinger with the Call of the Solidus, and then he's the one that really is driving the narrative, um, kind of as an antagonist force in this game overall. Um, so he is incredible. Like, and each because one thing we did when we covered uh, the game series on the podcast, Podcast on Frontiers, 
is we analyzed all the main characters in every game. And it was amazing because Ocelot is in every game aside from Peace Walker. But at each time out, we had to like totally reframe our analysis of him. It's not just like a continuation of the character. It's not just Solid Snake two years later. This is just kind of a fundamental reinvention of the character at almost every point. Yeah, it's just like a guy whose whole existence is just just fuck shit up. But I don't <laughs> know, like. Be gay, do crimes. Be gay, do crimes. That guy was so gay, he did every single crime. <laughs> One of the best characters in fiction, not not because of like necessarily any like writing sophistication. I think it's the opposite. I think he's one of the best characters ever because it's just kind of like pure. I'm just doing it. I'm just going to write this down and it's Ocelot's going to be the one to do it and realize it. And like the fact that there is not only one, but two explanations for why the arm does that to him. And both of them technically work just because mm-hmm. like, yeah, you, you established that at a different point in time. So I, I have to believe that because yeah, his dad is a ghost. <laughs> his dad is a ghost. So yeah, he would be able to commute with the spirits, but also maybe he's just lying to himself because he's working for a bigger purpose than himself. Mm-hmm. Maybe both are true to some point, whatever. Uh, I just needed to say that out there. I also have a billion thoughts on Solid Snake, but we got to end this episode eventually. And mm-hmm. that's what Manu's wonderful series is for. If you want more about like what the fuck is going on in podcasts, like in Metal Gear Solid 2, Podcast Sans Frontiers is a great completed series that you can go and revisit all that. You can figure out why Vamp is called that. And hey, it's not because <laughs> he has vampire powers. Why is that, Manu? Because he's bisexual. What the fuck? That is true. <laughs> that is a true statement. And why did, why did Kojima know that? Anyway, I think we've touched on like the impact this game has made on the the you know the greater video game industry in terms of people seeing the things that it's doing with uh in the interactive medium from the b- basic things like oh shit we need to put a f- we need to put a laser on the gun so people know what they're aiming at <laughs> God that's so smart shit <laughs> to just being more comfortable weaving narrative into their their stories and being more comfortable like making their characters non-avatars for the players or being able to have a character that you think you're going to play as not be the final character you play as in a game it clearly has an impact on the industry but what about the impact on Manu? I think it's the first time I really thought about a game not giving me the power fantasy or any piece of media. Cause you know, I watch a lot of star Wars and James Bond and in the end, you know, the main antagonist wins out and it's a pretty unqualified victory for them. Like I said, this was a theme that was present in the first metal gear solid, but I was not evolved enough and I didn't have the tools or language to really contextualize it as such. Um, so it was the first time where I started really looking at, are these things just trying to convince me that doing violence is the answer. And if I do violence in the right way, things problems will solve themselves or are things more complex than that um so that's one effect it had and i think being able to find those like i mentioned existential wins or moments of hope in very bleak or confusing stories um was another influence it had i would draw a straight line from that to my love of a song of ice and fire and game of thrones um and that's why i kind of bring those two up in conjunction a lot um and then uh, i don't know i I just like things that play with the fourth wall. And I don't mean like uh, Deadpool, uh, like, you know, kind of breaking the fourth wall and wicking at the audience. But I remember I only recently watched um, Neon Genesis Evangelion and End of Evangelion and all that stuff. And watching episodes 25 and 26 for the first time 
and like seeing stuff of like the audiences at movie theaters and like lines from the script. I'm like, oh my God, this is so Metal Gear Solid 2 coded. Um, that is something where it's just like something that's fundamentally like stopping the narrative to interrogate the actual thing that is happening to the actual audience member, the viewer or the gamer or whatever. It kind of made me a sucker for those things. I'm a sucker for like Charlie Kaufman stuff because of that. Kind of like the layered metatextual fourth wall breaking stuff like Synecdoche, New York or being John Malkovich, I think engaged in a lot of the same kind of play with form and function in the same way Metal Gear Solid 2 does. For sure. I, I would agree with you. And I think that it made me realize, and I talked about this in Inscription, that episode too, paralleling it to Metal Gear Solid 2. I think uh, as much as I love being John Malkovich and um, Charlie Kaufman's stories and uh, meta narratives, it's just a general thing, especially Evangelion. I'm literally wearing a, a shirt that has the Nair mm -hmm. logo and it says Live, Laugh, Love on it. I, I love Evangelion. I've compared many things to Evangelion in this show, whether it's Metal Gear or Final Fantasy. I'm happy to talk about it. But I do think that ultimately, like, meta narrative is like best suited to video games because it actually requires interaction in part of the player and interacting with the, with the viewer, in this case, the player, makes a more direct and meaningful impact. I watched the movie Funny Games for the first time a couple of years ago with somebody. And the person I watched it with most was not a gamer. But I had played many video games at that point, and I think the movie's good. I understand what it's trying to say. I get it. I'm not, you know, saying Michael Haneke is a hacker or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I I enjoyed the movie. I understand what it was communicating. But I said, like, to the person I was watching it with, like, yeah, I think the reason I didn't connect with it as much as you did is because I play video games like Metal Gear Solid. That's always, you know, at making you as the player question the things that you are doing vis-a-vis -vis the player. And I understand, like. It just isn't effective when Michael Haneke is going like, you're watching the movie and this is, <laughs> you, you are participating in the violence by watching. It's like, yeah, I killed a bunch of people in Metal Gear Solid with a katana. So I, and I felt terrible about it. And I think that numbed me to this. I'm sorry, man. I, I get it. But like I did the ghost mission. I, I had to fight a ghost of all the people <laughs> I killed in Metal Gear Solid 3. I, I get it, man. I get it. I, I did this before. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I do think that this is a game that made me appreciate good meta narrative stories more and also like made me realize that games are probably one of the best mediums for it. Life isn't just about passing on your genes. We can leave behind much more than just DNA. Through speech, music, literature and movies, what we've seen, heard, felt, anger, joy and sorrow. These are the things I will pass on. That's what I live for. We need to pass the torch and let our children read our messy and sad history by its light. We have all the magic of the digital age to do that with. The human race will probably come to an end sometime and new species may rule over this planet. Earth may not be forever, but we still have the responsibility to leave what traces of life we can. Building the future and keeping the past alive are one and the same thing. But yay, that's Metal Gear Solid 2. 
Any final comments before we move to recommendations? Uh, no, go play the game and never talk to me about it because your opinions are going to be wrong and mine are the correct ones and just listen to my podcast. He's correct. All right. Let's move on to the recommendations real quick. Manu, you're familiar with this. At the end of every episode, I like to give the space for the guests to give some recommendations based off of the game that we talked about. What would you recommend to people who love Metal Gear Solid 2? Um, I got three for you. And my first one is actually, let's say, an Easter egg to your previous episode, um, the one with Avery about Spider-Man, because he recommended Spider-Man Blue. I am also going to recommend Spider-Man Blue, um, because it is about reliving the death of Gwen Stacy, which happens on the George Washington Bridge, which this game starts with Solid Snake uh, taking a jump off of um, to land on the tanker. Um, There's a lot of kind of like Spider-Man DNA in a lot of Metal Gear Solid. Raiden was kind of envisioned as being a Spider-Man-like character. They were going to have him be more flexible and kind of like, that's why some of his cartwheels are in there. Um, There was a lot of kind of like wall crawling stuff that they eventually abandoned and put into the fear in Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, So I really like the Spider-Man influence. This game is very New York. So I feel like I got to give at least one New York-based recommendation. So I'm going to second Avery's Spider-Man Blue. Um, Secondly, I am going to uh, once again mention The Matrix Reloaded. And the one aspect that I really find overlaps with the two of them is this idea of taking an anomaly and making it part of the control. It is something we see in our real life where we have radical elements on the left, let's say Black Lives Matter or the DSA or whatever. And we see that the democratic institution will try to absorb them to kind of nullify and neuter it and make that kind of quote unquote radical thing part of their system. Um, And I think that's what's happening in the Matrix Reloaded. We find out that Neo as the anomaly is this something that fundamentally breaks the system in the first one. Matrix Reloaded is showing how actually they're working the anomaly into the system of control that exists set up by the architect and all that. That's kind of what's happening with here. Um, The Shadow Moses incident was something that the Patriots did not want to happen. Um, Solid Snake was a fly in their ointment as was Liquid Snake. So what they tried to do is create a system, the Solid Snake simulation, where they could turn something like a character, like a big boss coming up to challenge them. They're able to create their own Solid Snake to deal with that. Um, And thus, the thing that was an anomaly um, becomes part of the control system. So that is my second. And the third thing I'm going to recommend is another thing I mentioned a couple of times on this podcast is Metal Gear Solid 5 which I feel is the spiritual sequel to Metal Gear Solid 2. It does a protagonist switch. It has an extended introduction with the real character and then switches over to a mimetic copy, a phantom of the original. Um, And it's the part of the story that unfurls is very driven by uh, ideas of information control and language specifically, which we talked about a little bit with the Tower of Babel here. Um, And then obviously it also has its own set of kind of a confused ending or um, many endings rather. But I think it is very structurally and narratively very similar to this game. And I think it's kind of the true sequel um, to Metal Gear Solid 2 is The Phantom Pain. Wonderful insight about Metal Gear at the very end here. And also wonderful recommendations. Thank you so much, Manu, for that. Uh, I have two recommendations. One for each Metal Gear Solid this game is. Uh, The first one is Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Um, Mm, Love it. Not... Not, not to complicate it, uh, I love Kurt Vonnegut so much. I think he is one of the great satirists, and he has profound insight into the human experience and the, the tragedy of it and the beauty of it at the same time. And this is a great satire about nuclear war and the 
absurdity of it and the absurdity of violence and the absurdity about Doomsday of Humanity, uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 is ultimately a very gay metaphor about nuclear war. And we didn't get to touch on that too much because we decided to talk about the stuff that's keeping us up at night. But it is a component of those things mm-hmm. that are keeping us up at night, which is the, the march towards destruction and the ways that we distract ourselves from it and the ways that we accidentally perpetuate it, as in the case of Cat's Cradle. It's a very wonderful story. It's been a big year for the atom bomb, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I would say so. And uh, Cat's Cradle is definitely about the atom bomb and specifically about how an author's desire to you know, explore the day... Uh, the atom bomb exploded by the, and try and understand more about the family of the architect of the atom bomb. So cat's cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, uh, amazing book. Speaking of Kurt's, uh, snake is modeled after Kurt Russell as snake Pliskin from escape from New York, going so far as to use the name Iroquois Pliskin as his alias in the game. The first time I say Iroquois Pliskin in the episode, I think. <laughs> so Iroquois Pliskin was an alias. Of course. And the rank of Lieutenant Junior Grade made it up. That's just great. Anyway, I get the Pliskin part, but what about Iroquois? Iroquois is a Francified version of the Algonquin word for rattlesnakes. It's what they called their enemies. Algonquin? The Algonquin Nation, one of the many groups of Native Americans who used to call Manhattan Island their home. The majority of tribes in what's now the state of New York were a part of the Algonquin Nation. So this was a stronghold of snakes. By the way, Manhattan means Island of Hills in Algonquin. Uh, I love John Carpenter's movies, and that one was a big blind spot for me until like January of this year. And I knew he borrowed heavily from Snake Plissken, but I wasn't prepared for how Kurt Russell sounded exactly like Snake in this movie. That one threw me. I had no idea that Hater was just doing literally Kurt Russell. And that, that's funny. It's great. That's not my recommendation. My recommendation is a different Kurt Russell, John Carpenter film, Big Trouble in Little China. Hear me out. Metal Gear Solid 2 and Big Trouble in Little China both have a character named Jack who thinks that they are the protagonist of the story, but they are not the hero. They are not the hero of the story. They are a piece of the puzzle that doesn't belong there and also has to be there because that's how the story is told. That's just how the story has to be told but they are not in control of the narrative. Uh, and while Jack Burton is played by Kurt Russell, who is based off of Snake, I do think that Jack Burton and Jack Ryden have a lot more in common with each other. So yeah, a comedy action film and a movie that is the defining art of the 21st century have a lot in common. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have to say, since you mentioned Escape from New York, um, the character model for Revolver Ocelot is very much based off of Lee Van Cleef from that movie as well. Yes, you are absolutely right. And I, I, we both clocked that, like we talked about it separately. But yeah, that's Lee Van Cleef, who looks like John Carpenter, old now, who also mm-hmm. looks like Revolver Ocelot. Very fun. Last thing I'll say is Metal Gear Solid 2 is probably the defining work of the 21st century, not in just the narrative and how prescient it was in its themes, but also in terms of ushering in a new era of technology in the entertainment space and showing what was possible within it. It's beauty and it's tragedy at the same time. Manu, let's just talk about the beauty now. Handsome man, a lot of podcasts. Let's promote him before you go. Yeah, so um, kind of the alchemy or the mix of the podcast I'm doing has changed since last I was here. We, have, we finished the Metal Gear Solid coverage at Podcast Sans Frontiers. It stands at a 
solid 70 episodes covering all six major games, including, uh, and then on top of that, Revengeance and a couple one-off episodes, both on Metal Gear Solid and about other things. Um, so if you're exploring the Metal Gear Solid collection for the first time, um, I highly recommend you check them out. They are fully spoilers. So we will be talking about Metal Gear Solid 5 as early as the first game. So just be ready for that. I also am currently doing the Lord of the Rings podcast called My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast with my co-host Emily, who was on for the Breath of the Wild episode. That one is currently um, on hiatus until 2024, um, just kind of a busy end of the year. So we're going to uh, pick back up with our coverage of Return of the King, the third book and movie um, sometime at the early part of 2024. And my main podcasting home right now is the Not A Cast podcast, which is the A Song of Ice and Fire podcast, where we're going through um, A Song of Ice and Fire, the books that Game of Thrones are based on, one chapter at a time. Um, just recently in the past few months, we covered The Red Wedding, which is the seminal moment of the whole story, the one that kind of put Game of Thrones on the map and made it a pop culture juggernaut, um, as well as very recently, we just covered The Purple Wedding, uh, which was the death of... Uh, I don't have to spoil it, but it's another very consequential moment. Um, I will say um, the guy who played Joffrey Baratheon in Game of Thrones, Jack Gleason, he's also the little boy in Batman Begins, um, who uh, you might remember from that. Anyways, I think he would be a great link. <laughs> I would partially also like to see it just because the Joffrey character is one of the most hated in pop culture of all time. So I would love to see him be like, assumably a lovable link. I can fix him. <laughs> Let's talk. Pick up the phone, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Manu, for the for you know shouting yourself out. You have a lot of wonderful stuff out there that people need to listen to. And I am also going to be taking a break until 2024, unless you join my Patreon and you'll get my first ever bonus episode. You just have to donate $1 a month at patreon.com slash corner and you'll get a bonus episode in December. Otherwise, this is my last episode of the year. I'll be back in January. It's nothing against you. I'm just making taking December off a tradition because it's the busiest time of my full-time job. And also, I need to get ahead in recording. And having a month off to do that would get me ahead. And even though I got every episode out on time, assuming everything went well in the editing process of this, I can only make the show better with more planning. Thank you again, Manu, for doing the last episode of 2023 and the first episode ever of my show. Uh, you are a wonderful person. The internet may be horrible, but it brought me to you, and that makes it good. Yes, and congratulations to you, because um, the way the show has grown and really taken off and the quality and quantity of guests you're pulling, the coverage you're doing, I think, is top-notch, some of the best games podcasting happening right now. Yeah, for example, I've got you twice. That's, that's something. Thank you again for being on the show, and thank you so much for listening to this episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm your host, editor, and promoter, Kiefer. If you enjoyed this episode, please give the show a positive review wherever you're listening to this. Engagement helps the show. Your feedback will improve it. And if you want to get more engaged, give the show a follow on Twitter at SelectPodStart. If you have thoughts about Metal Gear Solid 2, Sons of Liberty, or any other games we discussed, please leave a DM or send me a comment. And I will gladly read it on the show. You can also support me on Patreon. Like I just said, give me $1 a month. You can get early access to new episodes as well as extended episodes with exclusive content and one bonus episode of December to be determined. That's on patreon.com slash Corner. You can find a link to that and the rest of my projects in the description of this episode. Select and Start is on the Moonshot Network, which is supported by its own Patreon. Find out more at moonshotpods.com. The art for this show was made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. 
The show's theme song was composed by Mike Petrie. You can check out the links to both of their works, as well as Manu's, once again, in the description of this episode. All right, I think that's it. I need scissors. 61. I was like, oh, I want to kill this guy so bad, but it's not a good thing to kill people.